Welcome in to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. You know, folks, I am really, I know I say I'm really excited for today's program. I'm especially excited for today's program as I think I've been talking to our next guest longer than we'll talk today on today's program. Uh, we've had a good conversation off air, but we're going to have an even better conversation today talking about her new book, Sarah DeVello is a true crime novelist and the creator host of Mystery and Thriller Mavens, which is a popular interactive Facebook group. She also has a weekly Mystery and Thriller Mavens uh, live event we'll talk a little bit about as well. She's interviewed more than 300 authors, ranging from the best-selling and world-renowned Dean Koontz, Patricia Cornwell, Lee Child, Jeffrey Deaver, Tamron Hall, Karen Slaughter, Ruth Ware, Lisa Unger, and many more, just to name a few to the buzziest debuts. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, her podcast that she hosts as well. There's a lot of stuff going on in Sarah's life here. Uh, in her spare time, she loves to teach yoga, cook and eat, garden and go for leisurely walks with her husband and their beloved rescue mutt. I believe it's pronounced Paluta, but we're going to ask. Uh, Sarah is passionate about all things books especially mysteries and thrillers, the craft of writing and connecting readers to their uh, authors, as well as introducing them to their new discoveries. She splits her time between New York City and Boston. Let's welcome in, by the way, the new book, which is amazing, and I got the privilege of reading it last week, is, and, and by the way, you need to read it too, is called Broadway Butterfly, a thriller. Uh, by Sarah DeVello. Let's welcome in to True Crime Tuesday, Sarah DeVello. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi, Tim. I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited to have you here as well. Let's get let's talk about everything that is you first before we jump into uh, Broadway Butterfly, which, by the way, awesome book. Thank you so oh much God. for putting it out there. Thank you so um, much. That's so it's so meaningful. Thank you so much. So many threads too. So many threads that are woven into Broadway Butterfly. Again, we'll we'll get to that when when we get to it. Let's talk about all things Sarah right now. Um, first of all, I want to know what what gets Sarah into the art of writing books. What is it about writing books that thrilled you and made you want to do it full time as an author? You know, I think I've always loved the craft of storytelling, both as a reader first and now as a writer. I love the connection of storytelling. I love to hear stories. I love to tell stories. I love to be intrigued. I love to intrigue others. I love to laugh. I love to make others laugh. I love that connection, that connectivity. And so to be a thread in that tapestry of storytelling is so exciting to me. There's especially in this book, Broadway Butterfly, you did something that's really hard to do with the era you're writing in, in 1923, and that is grab historical fact, bring it forward into 2023, and combine it with the characters and make an intense, complex storyline and make it incredibly entertaining. It's... It's tough to reach back 100 years and pull that kind of information and not do it with, and this is uh, to your credit, not do it with a bias because there are, uh, there are some politicians in this book. There could be what's construed by the reader as political bias, but there's not. And there are mm. characters with political slants, yet there's no overwhelming political bias. Tell me 
how hard it is to stay one uh, politically accurate and two keep the political bias out of the story. Mm, that is such a thoughtful and good question. And first of all, thank you for the incredible props on 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 the book. I, I really appreciate that, especially knowing how many books you read and how many interviews you do. So thank you so much. Sure. And I think that, you know, I try to think about that, that old that uh, age old adage of just the facts, ma'am. And I try to stick to just the facts, because when I think about what I love about true crime, it's that I think Mark Twain got it right. I think that truth is stranger than fiction. And I mm-hmm. freaking like that. I dig that. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to stick to the truth. I wanted to stick to the facts because I think that is so much cooler than anything that anyone could make up. Yeah. And I think when you are a fiction writer, the burden on on you know authors who write fiction is that they have to make a completely imaginary world feel believable, feel true. Mm-hmm. But so many times they they try, they try and they fail or they strain credibility. They, they strain believability. And so people will say, you know, readers will say, oh, that would never happen. Or she would never do that. Or he would never do that or whatever. And what I love about true crime and nonfiction is that when someone says, oh, that would never happen, you can say, Oh, but it did because you can lean into the ludicrous. And I love that because humans are weird and crazy. And when you really get into a crazy true crime, the craziness and the ludicrous nature is what makes it so fascinating. Mm -hmm. So that's what I loved, love about the genre and sticking to the facts to me was so much more interesting than anything I could ever hope to make up. When, when you're dealing with something that happened 100 years ago, is there enough time that's passed that when you're dealing with families of the people involved, there's a little bit of the, the sting that comes off of the case that people can talk about it more matter-of-factly, that it isn't, you know, especially when it comes to Dot, who's the, the, the victim in the, in the case, you know, it's not, oh, Auntie Dot, you know, oh, it was so, it was so tragic, it hurts, it stings. It's more, oh, yeah, matter of factly, it was great Auntie Dot that, you know, was was offed here. Um, mm. and, and there's more of a matter of fact relatability to it to you as they tell you the story? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true because when necessarily true crime in, in, in because it is a crime includes a victim and often that victim has their life taken from them mm-hmm. and that is always going to be tragic because what could that person have become what could they have accomplished what would they have lived and tried and loved and reveled in you know who would dot king have become who would any of us have become with the luxury of having a longer runway right so i think we always have to acknowledge the truth of that um and the, and the tragic nature of that. But when you are a hundred years down the line, it does, I think that distance does give some, um, some, you know, let's, let's things cool off a bit. Um, and that's the beauty of a, you know, that's the, that's the beauty of a cold case is that it's not so fresh. It's not so painful. Nobody in the case is alive anymore. You know, nobody related to the case is alive anymore. And so with that, with that, um, you know, time and distance comes perspective 
productive and 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 I think that's a benefit that that I enjoyed working with is not feeling like I was stepping into you know someone's pain and I think you know one of the authors that I've had the privilege of of interviewing is Tamron Hall and she you know she for I think it was seven years would interview the families um, of, of 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 murder victims and she finally just said it's too painful because when you're sitting with a family, a mother whose child has been killed and, and, and she's sobbing and raw and broken. It's like, that's a lot to, that is a lot of emotion to step into and to try to hold for someone else or to just bear witness to. And I think it wears on people or, you know, I, I was interviewed by a former crime reporter in Philadelphia and he said he just couldn't, he just got to the point where he couldn't do it anymore. It was, it hurt too much. And so I think that I don't know anybody who would stay with it for, you know, decades or because it just, it's too painful. That brings up a good question. When is, uh, as an author, as a reporter, as someone who carries people's burdens for lack of a better term, or, or takes their stories, puts it on the page, uh, for people to be recognized. Mm. Um, when is the time to lay down the sword? When is the time to, when's a healthy time to say, you know what? I can't carry people's stories any longer. It's time to hand it down to the next generation. When is it healthy to step away and say, I need that time for me or I need to recover my own mental health? That is such a great question. And I, I have a feeling it's probably super individual as you know, so many things are based on people's own life experiences and, and their own emotional bandwidth based on what's going on in their life and their life experience and their, you know, emotional maturity and, you know, and, and life experience and all of those, you know, many and myriad factors. But I think that, you know, one thing that was really important to me with the story was in honor in to honor these people because they're all real characters. They're all real people who were extraordinary human beings. And I wanted to honor them, both the victim, Dot King, and the four people who I tell the story through, you know, because Dot King was denied justice and harmed multiple ways. The first, of course, being that she was murdered and her life and whatever potential that held was robbed from her, was taken from her. Mm -hmm. And the idea that that uh, one human being can do that to another, can just take that from someone is sort of in incomprehensible to me, even after all these years, that one human has the power to do that to another human being, to take that potential from them is really mind boggling if you sit and think about it. So it, subsequently, Dot King was further harmed when um, you know, nobody was prosecuted for this case. Nobody went to prison for this case. And not that sitting in a prison can ever make up for taking someone's life, but it, it's the only thing we have where we can say, you know, what else can we do to acknowledge, to, to create some sort of justice? She was never given that dignity. She was never given that justice. And then the third way in which she was harmed was that the case, because of, power, the, you know, various people in power was prematurely curtailed. Um, she was further harmed because 
her her murderer was never even publicly revealed. He got to walk amongst us for the rest of his life as though he had not harmed someone, as though he had not taken someone's life. He got to go to lunch, get a job, go clothes shopping, go golfing, <laughs> like yeah, whatever yeah. he wanted to do, you know, mixing with the rest of us as though he was not a murderer. And it has really made me wonder how many murderers have I walked past in the course of my life? I mean, surely I must have walked past at least one. We all must have. Um, and it's just kind of a crazy thought that he got to go on and have his whole life and, and she didn't. So it was sort of a third way that she was harmed. And so I hope that in writing this book and revealing, um, you know, who I think did it mm -hmm. is it is in some very small way giving her a small piece of justice where it it's revealing the truth and the truth in, in its revelation, I think, is 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 one small, you know, strike to power. People may read this book, and I, I'm not going to spoil anything by saying this, but people may read this book and they may say, well, when it comes to Dot, hmm. is she truly, is there such a thing as someone who hasn't walked into certain circumstances that they may have brought upon themselves? I'm not saying she deserved it or asked for it. Don't, don't misconstrue what I'm saying. But we all play with fire. Hmm. We all get burned. We all run into a certain set of circumstances that sometimes when we're acting a certain way or behaving a certain way, we bring a set of circumstances upon ourselves. Mm. Is it the, and I know we were going to launch into this a little bit later. I wanted to get to learn a little bit more about you first and we'll get there, Sarah, we will get there. Um, but, but is it, is it the fact here that that Sarah did kind of bring some of these circumstances or put herself in line for some of these circumstances herself? Or was this unjust anyways? So I think about that a lot because on one hand, I think we have do as you exactly as you said be really careful never to blame the victim right, we always right. want to put the blame on the murder on the murderer on the perpetrator yes having said that i think the uh, the the fact of uh, not i think i know that the fact of the matter is that most people are murdered by those who are very close to them yes. and so i think the scariest sort of crime is that you know you're just you're walking down the street home from work having a lovely day and uh, you know a total stranger leaps out from the bushes and attacks you strangles you kills you and that's sort of the scariest thing is that the, the, the that you know and one of the police officers and also one of the um forensic experts that I that I interviewed. So, you know, that's the scariest idea is this act of random violence. A stranger um, is, is is what spreads the most fear amongst people. But the truth of the matter is, is that most people are murdered by those who are known to them. And so I think that we again, you, it's you, you know, it's never the fault of the victim. And I think you want to be thinking about the company that you keep. If you are running, and Dot King ran with some very dangerous people. Mm -hmm. She chose to associate with some really, really powerful and really dangerous guys. And I think that when you choose <laughs> to hang out with dangerous, violent people, um, 
And there are, you know, valid reasons why she was doing that, um, which mainly are that, you know, this is a time, 1923 is a time when less than 20% of women worked outside the home, um, a time when women had very little, um, very little power, had very little access to work and work, of course, equals money and money equals power, self-sufficiency, freedom, all of these things. Um, you know, women didn't, less than 20% of women worked outside the home. Most women didn't have a lot of, of that, of these things. So we always want to zoom out a little and look at, well, why would a person put herself in these situations? Why would a person hang out with really dangerous, violent men? Why would you hang out with gangsters? <laughs> why would you hang out with, you know, I don't want to give it away, but some sure. really powerful people right. that are known to all of us. Um, and the answer is because you have a lack of other choices and all of us want to survive, right? All right. of us want to have food, clothing, shelter, safety, right? Humans, like all animals, seek safety first, mm -hmm. seek survival first. Mm -hmm. And so when you zoom out and you look at where she came from, first generation American, parents are Irish immigrants, father, mother's a, works at a laundry, a laundress, father's a night watchman at Wanamaker's, which is a, a department store like Kohl's or Macy's or whatever. Um, you know, her family moved around a lot. They lived in a variety of apartment apartments. We're looking at some housing instability, maybe some food instability. Um, you know, you want to look at where someone comes from. She's married at the age of, you know, 17. Um, you know, that doesn't work out. And she finds herself out on the street having to make do and, and survive because, you know, she after she gets divorced or sorry, after she leaves her husband, um, she moves back in with her family and her father has since died. Her brother, because this is a patriarchy, is now the house head of the household. And this is a time women were not allowed to cut their hair. Mm -hmm. Women had never cut their hair before. All women had long hair. And now in the 1920s, women are cutting their hair for the first, for the first time in history. Yes. And all of a sudden, but only a certain kind of woman is cutting her hair and she cuts her hair and she dyes it blonde. And her brother said, and she's wearing skirts that are no longer floor length. They're, you know, the, you know, just below the knee. And he says, you look like a tramp and he throws her out of the house. And mm -hmm. so she's out on the streets of New York City and she's got to figure out how to survive. So when you look at her in that, in that context of a young woman trying to survive, trying to figure out housing with no education, what, you know, not, not a lot of skills. Um, this is why someone might find themselves choosing to associate with whoever you need to associate in order to survive. Right. Right. So within that context, that's why someone might, you know, why she was perhaps hanging out with these people. Um, but when you are hanging out with people who are in some dangerous, illegal stuff, you're putting yourself at higher risk. Well, exactly. And, and it goes deeper for, for Dot than that. It, it gets to a point where, and Dot's not her original name. Uh, she chose to get away from her Irish roots, her original mm -hmm. Irish name. She chooses to take the pseudonym of, of uh, Dot King and move forward. Uh, she's described as a flapper, which in 1923 is, is not the most, um, uh, not the most, or, or the greatest a uh, job that uh, a woman can have. It's looked down upon. Yes. Uh, but she's also described as the most beautiful woman in New York City. Which exactly. is something. Right? She, she was... She was Manhattan's it girl. She was the most beautiful woman in New York City. She is this gorgeous, 
you know, woman who finds work as a model because she has this extraordinary beauty. And she starts working as a model and then, you know, starts to want to become more independent and try to make a little more than she can as a model. And so she starts exploring, you know, other career paths. And again, you know, looking at, 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 at the choices that, that, that women had back then and the choices that a first generation, you know, Irish American immigrant with, I, you know, very limited education, you know, looking at what her, her options are and, and looking at what her, you know, what, what she has to work with and, and how she can make do from there. And, you know, I think you can always learn so much by zooming out and taking and looking at the context of the situation. I think that was one of the most interesting things for me was looking at, you know, how did we end up here and what was life like for all of these people? Mm-hmm. You know, and I really wanted to, you know, to tell her story and, and, um, cause she's pretty fascinating and, and also tell the story, uh, you know, through the four people that I, I, through, that I tell the story through, cause I have four points of view and those people are all really fascinating too. Like I actually couldn't believe how cool and amazing they each were. were. And, and my job was basically just try not to mess it up. <laughs> well, and you do an amazing job at telling it through those four people. And I tell you what, let's take our break right now. When we come back, let's talk about those four people. Actually, one of them I, I found highly inspiring. And and we'll we'll talk about her when we get back. Um, I come from a media family. We'll tease it this way. And and one of the uh, one of the people in my family uh, was the first ever television news director, female television news director in the nation. Oh my gosh! So oh, when we got a connection here, <laughs> yeah. So so when I see that you're in your book, you throw out one of thirty six female news reporters uh, in in the book. To me, that's inspiring. I, I I like that she's the lead in or one of the leads in this in this book, and she's not just a wallflower. She's actually getting things done in this book and she's she's uh got a tight relationship with the inspector in this book who is who is getting things done as well and feeding her clues as to what's going on uh with the case uh surrounding doc king so when we come back we'll talk a little bit about julia who's the the uh, newspaper reporter in this book and 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 more we've got more coming out broadway butterflies the name of the book a thriller by sarah Devello. And we've got a link in the description of this program. I want you to click on it. Get this book. I'm telling you, folks, it's rich in in content. It's rich in story. It's rich in character development. It's a book that you are thoroughly going to enjoy. I, I highly, highly recommend. It's a, it's a great, great book, especially as, as the, uh, the temperature falls outside and you're looking for something to curl up with and stay warm with. Uh, this book is excellent. Uh, and and will be very, very satisfying for you. Broadway Butterfly, a thriller by Sarah DeVello is the book. When we come back, we'll talk about these four points of view, these four people who are integral to the storyline. You're listening to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. Welcome back to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Our guest is Sarah DeVello. The book is Broadway Butterfly, a thriller. And folks, I'm telling you, go out, get this book. There's a link in the description of this pro- program. Uh, I had the pleasure of sitting down this past week and, and getting to uh, 
getting not only to read it, but really absorb it. It's, it's a complex true crime story that takes place in 1923 uh, in Manhattan. Well, really the New York area. I mean, there's, there's a, a bit of the Bronx in there. Uh, there's a bit of lower Manhattan there. There's a bit of uh, different areas of New York there, which is, is, uh, an interesting setting as well. I mean, we go from West West 57th Street, uh, uptown, um, and there's um, a lot of different perspectives here. And I, I tip my cap to you for that as well, Sarah. There's four people who who tell this story throughout the, the book. And, and why don't you tell us who these these characters are that that tell this story, Sarah? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited too. So the first perspective is Julie Hartman. So she is the lead crime reporter covering this case. And she is the lead crime reporter for the New York Daily News. And what's really cool about Julie, aside from everything, is that she is a Jewish girl from Memphis, Tennessee, who grew up in the newspaper world. And she becomes one of the six pioneering women of journalism at the turn of the century. This is a woman who cut her teeth on, you know, newspapers in Memphis, moves to Knoxville, Tennessee, takes on the court beat, and then she decides to move to New York City and take on the Big Apple, testing her mettle there in the biggest city in the United States. And she becomes not only the lead female crime reporter, the lead crime reporter full stop. This is a woman who is blazing the trail for all future female journalists, all future crime reporters to come. This is a woman who's who should be known by all of us, whose career should be taught in every journalism class, history of journalism class. She should be famous. And the crazy thing is nobody knows her. She's been completely forgotten by time, completely covered by time's dust. And I hope in some small way that this book re, you know, unveils this extraordinary human being and her amazing career because every single female journalist, including, you know, the one that you just mentioned, Tim, stands in some way on this woman's shoulders. And that is really, really cool. I mean, she covers all sorts of famous cases, including the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. She covers the first woman to swim the English Channel. Gertrude Adderley in 1926. She is in the boat. She sponsors the swim for the New York Daily News. I mean, this is a history making woman. And, you know, when the when the Dot King case is prematurely curtailed due to those in power who don't want their dark, dirty deeds revealed, um, Julia bides her time and then she jumps back in, leading the investigation herself in spite of her very life being threatened, her physical safety being attacked. And it made me wonder, Tim, what do I love? What am I committed enough to that I would stare death in the face um, to, to, to do? And if someone said, if you keep doing this, you will be killed. What do I love and believe in so passionately that I would still do it, risking my life? And Julia Hartman believed in truth and journalism and justice so much that she literally risked her life for it. And I just think that is so amazing. Um, 
My second point of view is Detective John D. Coughlin. He's the head of the NYPD Detectives Unit. He has 1,200 men reporting to him. He's the son of an Irish immigrant who was a cop in Ireland, then a cop in New York City. He becomes a cop as soon as he's out of high school. And then he works his way up from a patrolman to, you know, to a pickpocket catcher on the <laughs> racetracks. He crosses paths with Arnold Rothstein, who's famous for, for, fixing the 1919 World Series, the most infamous gangster in New York City. Um, if you've ever watched Boardwalk Empire, you'll know who I'm talking about, yep. Rothstein. Yep. Um, and he is in charge of this investigation. And so, and pretty much every other famous investigation in the 1920s, including Arnold Rothstein's future murder in 1928. So he is a really cool guy, um, an incredible human being. He never married. He never had kids. He devoted himself to his career, to the pursuit of justice. And he was in charge of meeting out justice. And what was really interesting to me is that he himself was the victim of injustice, both in this case and beyond this case. And I really wanted to look at that broadly. I wanted to look at justice in general, you know, uh, what is justice? What is fairness? What is injustice? What is unfairness? What does that look like to all of these people in the book? And what does that look like to Detective Coughlin? Um, and so that was something I was really excited to look at. Um, my third perspective is Ella Bradford. She was the murder victim's closest friend, her confidant, the keeper of all her secrets. Mm -hmm. She becomes the police, uh, the police's biggest informant, the one that, that has the most knowledge about the murder, about the victim. Um, Ella Bradford is one of the 7 million black Americans who are part of what's called the Great Migration when in the wake of the Civil War and legalized segregation um, and and racism. Um, she, you know, Ella Bradford sat in a quote unquote colored waiting room in Jacksonville, Florida to get on a quote unquote colored train car um, to, you know, sitting separately from the white people to travel 1900 miles north to New York City, which was not segregated in part to look to build a better life for herself. And seven million black Americans did that um, between 1865 and 1970. And Ella Bradford and, and so many, um, you know, like so many of the black Americans who were part of the Great Migration were was incredibly brave and just incredibly courageous to get on a train at the age of 19 years old and go to a city she'd never been to 19 mile, 100 miles away from everyone she knows and everything that feels like sounds like you know it feels like home mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to, to try to create a better life I mean that's incredible and I wanted to tell that story and honor Ella Bradford and her courage and her truth yeah um, and then my fourth perspective is Frances Stotesbury so she is um, part of what the, uh, the what's known as society capital S which in the time before celebrity um, because again, t you know, TV had not been invented. Movies had just been invented, but they were silent films. So Rudolph Valentino, Clara Bell, you know, these sort of very first movie stars were just starting to come out into the world. But the celebrities of the time were the wealthiest of the wealthy. So basically like the 1923 version of the Kardashians, they haven't really done anything, but they're just, <laughs> you know, really, really rich and very beautiful. Yeah. 
And so <laughs> Frances is, you know, the dog is a debutante. You know, her dad is a founding partner with JP Morgan. You know, JP himself, the the bank, JP Morgan still exists. But this was when JP, you know, good old JP was 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 was, you know, a real a real guy. He had just recently died then. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, her dad was a founding partner. He's the ris- richest person in, in Pennsylvania. Um, and she grew up with unimaginable wealth. And again, at a time when women had very little power and very little, um, you know, sort of you know, their own power outside of the home, she was deemed one of the foremost powerful women in society whose, you know, who, whose, ver- whose one look could stop a social climber in her tracks. So she's a tastemaker. She's determining the fashion, what to wear, what to eat, where to vacation, you know, how to live your life in the same way that we look to what Kim Kardashian is wearing. Why do we care what Kim Kardashian is wearing? But somehow we do. Yeah. <laughs> so Francis was sort of one of these people. And she's preparing to host the president of the United States, President Harding, who's about to reannounce his, uh, his his bid for renomination mm-hmm. and uh, is on a fundraising trip in Florida. And she's they're going to host him for the second time because, of course, they host, you know, him. They this is not the first time they've hosted him. They all, you know, the, the, in this level of wealth and privilege, they are, you know, hosting presidents multiple times. And never in a million years does she dream that this murder case, you know, thousands of miles away is going to impact her life in the most extraordinary and unexpected of ways. And with each of these characters, there's a good way of putting it, I I guess, is there's not only drama, but there's also challenges within each of their lives, which Mm. um, kind of hit them in the face and, and, and what's a good way of putting this, Sarah? It kind of, stunts their own growth and keeps them from um, advancing their own growth further than what they they should be at that time. And I, mm. I, I, I'm trying to do this spoiler free, so bear with me as I try to find the words here. I'll give an example. And again, I, I want to tip my cap to you on this because it's hard. And again, I, I don't want people to think that I'm, I'm, I'm uh, doing any type of cultural appropriation here or anything, but uh, I grew up with a with an African American stepdad, mm-hmm. and it's hard for people to put themselves in the place of an African American person who doesn't deal within the culture. But you do a brilliant mm-hmm. job of of telling the story of Ella talking to her babysitter. Wamba. Mm-hmm. When Wamba's trying to, and, and talking about classism within the African-American race in 1923, because Ella's working for, for, for Dot, and Dot is very generous with, with Ella mm. and gives her, gives her furs and, mm. and, uh, and gifts and treats her very well, mm. which is looked down upon by her babysitter. Mm. You know, she, she, she just looks down upon it. She, she looks at her as uppity. Yes. Her babysitter looks at her as uppity. That's the best way of putting it. Mm. And to put the tension there when she goes to pick up her son, when Ella goes to pick up her son, June is, is so eloquent. You put it so eloquent on the page of where that line is. And there's a line. 
mm. between, between Wamba and, and Ella. And throughout the book, there's this line there that, that Ella always has where she doesn't fit. Mm. She never seems to fit. She doesn't fit in her neighborhood. She only fits with her husband. Her mm. husband knows what she's been through and how she struggled to, to try to put food on the table for her family. Mm. But she never seems to fit. She doesn't quite fit in the white world where she's trying to work and make a dollar. She doesn't quite seem to fit in the neighborhood where they think she's sold out. Mm. Yet she's come from so far to get to New York just to have a better life. And that's mm. so eloquently put on the page. And again, I tip, tip my cap to you. Wow, Tim, thank you so much. Um, I can't tell you how much that means to me because I love Ella so much and I worked so hard to try to honor the truth of Ella's experience. And the, the fact of the matter is I will never know what it's like to be black in America because yeah. I have the privilege of being a white woman in America. So I will never fully know the, I will never know the experience of what it is to be black in America and let alone what it would be like to be black in America in 1923. Yeah. And I wanted to make sure I got it right. So my honorary auntie Bernadine, um, who has a PhD and a master's and a master's of divinity and an MBA and is the most learned person I know and who also happens to be black um, helped me over the course of the nine years that it took me to write this book to help me honor the character of Ella as a black woman in America. Mm -hmm. And I said to my auntie Bernadine, you know, let me, I, I, I want to get it right. And don't, you know, I, I come humble with an open heart, open mind and open ears. Tell me how to get it right. Tell me how to honor her. And, you know, and I listened and she really helped me with everything about Ella. Um, you know, what it would have been like for a black woman to work for a white woman and at that time, how important respectability was. And, you know, Bernadine really said, you know, to be respectable is everything. And I put that in the book. And because especially at that time, um, you know, Bernadine was explaining to me that, 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 that in the black culture, you just wanted to be respectable, to be accepted and, and, you know, and that dressing well was so important. And she really helped me with, with you know, with, she also helped me a lot with Coughlin, with Detective Coughlin, but she really helped me with Ella. Mm -hmm. And then I additionally hired a sensitivity reader, Dr. Piper Hugley, who teaches English literature at Clark University, which is um, a historically black um, co uh, college in Atlanta. And I hired her and I said, I just want to, because no one person should be responsible for speaking for an entire culture. I wouldn't want to speak for all white people right. <laughs> in America. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I would never want to ask my Auntie Bernadine to speak for all black people. So, um, and so I said to Piper, you know, I hired Piper and I said, you know, I want to make sure I got this right. And I, she had some changes. I made all those changes. And then my publisher additionally hired a sensitivity reader just to make sure that we were really honoring the depth of this experience as much as we possibly could. And, you know, and, 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 you know, I really, Bernadine really wanted to help me address the colorism that exists and continues to exist within the black community. And, 
And I think ultimately, you know, we all want to belong. We all want to be accepted. We all want to be respected. And it's very hard when you are from one place and you live in another. Mm -hmm. And I know I have had that experience of being of not living where I'm from. <laughs> and Tim, you and I were just talking about chipmunks right before we went live. And I learned that chipmunks only go a hundred feet from where they're born, yep. <laughs> which I was fascinated to learn. But so many of us live more than a hundred feet from where we're born. And oh, yes. when you come from one place and you live very far from home, you know, whether it's another state or another country, it's a very alienating feeling. And ultimately, we all just want to create community and feel like we were belonging. And so I really wanted to capture that feeling of not belonging, of of living, of feeling alienated, living in a place where people don't sound like you and where you're just trying to get naked and, and, and gain acceptance, but, but struggling to find that both at work, where she works in predominantly white neighborhood for a white woman. And what would that be like for her as a black woman, both in the white world and, and in Harlem, a you know, predominantly black neighborhood. And also, what would that be like for her in her community? You know, would she be accepted for that? Would there be jealousy? Would there be resentment? And, and I wanted to capture all of that because that is what Ella Bradford would have had to deal with. There's also another line that you got it absolutely right. And it had to do, and I, I can only paraphrase, I'm trying to find it in front of me, but I'm not, I'm doing a horrible job trying to find it. And that is, when James is talking to Ella, her husband, and it's right before she's supposed to go in and, and talk to the police, um, and he says, basically, just tell them what they want to hear and just come home. Just mm. make it home. Just make it home. Uh, and never never talk with the door shut. Mm. And it reminds me so much of, you know, that you hear about the talk. And I'm sure yes. your Auntie Bernadine talked talk to you about the talk. Yes. And I knew about the talk from, from my stepdad. Mm. And, um, y you know, th there's, there's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a hard conversation to hear about when mm. you, you didn't grow up in that community and, and to think, well, come on, that, that can't be real, can it? But it is. And, and mm -hmm. to read that sequence where Ella is sitting in the police station and, and the captain puts the, puts the paper in front of her and says, well, just give us a list of names. And she's trying to actually give information about who killed Dot. Mm. And they're not interested. They just, they just want suspects to rouse. Mm. It, it, you know, the captain has a set way in his mind of going about the investigation. And that's all he's, he's going to go on based on what his racial belief is mm. and the way things are set up in quote unquote rich homes. Mm. And he's only going to look at the help based on stereotypes and it's it's very powerful because by this point we've gotten to know Ella. We've gotten to know Ella is 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 loyal, dependable, likable, is, mm. is a hard worker, is one that that really has been through thick and thin with with Dot and has her best interests at heart mm. and was crushed when she found her dead. Mm. And you just 
you're, you're rooting for her just to get out of there. You just want her to get out of that office. Again, it's a powerful scene in the book. And, you know, you, you, again, just another tip of the cap. It's, it's hard to, it's, it's hard. I think for most, it, it would be hard. I think unless you were African-American to, to put that scene on the page and, and get it right. You know, you, you could try um, to convey the horror of, of what that feels like to not be understood uh, to, uh, and to be hated. Let's, let's face it, to be hated and mm. just want to be um, manipulated so you could get what you need uh, to go do what you want. And that's mm. essentially what that scene was, it, you know, um, and uh, it's a brilliant scene. I, again, this is why I encourage, I encourage my listeners to go out and get this book because you see things from a lot of different points of view. And that, that's not the entire book. Again, I want to stress to people, that's not the entire book. And that's not what we're talking about. It's one perspective. Um, you get, again, Julia, who has a wonderful perspective of, you know, fighting the system and winning. I mean, she's mm. consistently winning. But she's boy, she's got an uphill battle when she's winning. And you've got the perspective from inside the system, the frustration of the inspector who he's fighting the the idiot captain who wants to, you know, and and he can't believe he's fighting this idiot who wants to blame it on on the help, you know, and you've you've got that that perspective as well. And Again, I'm not going to give any spoilers about the socialite, but the the perspective of the socialite is so interesting in that you don't realize what problems are there from the socialite's point of view. They may seem like, I hate to put it this way, hashtag white people problems, <laughs> but they they really are interesting issues. The, the one issue, I'll tell you this much, Sarah, I, I'll give this to you too. Is it the issue with Harding in the card game in the tea set? Do you know what I'm talking about? Can you tell yeah. our audience about that? Is that, is that spoiler worthy? That is, that is not too much. No, that is not a spoiler. So Francis and her family, let me just give you a snapshot of how wealthy these folks are. So they have two homes in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. One is, you know, downtown in Rittenhouse Square, takes up the whole whole city block. And then because, you know, you don't always want to spend the weekend in the city, they have a another house, you know, in the suburbs um, in an area called Chestnut Hill, called White Marsh. And that is called White Marsh Hall. Now, White Marsh Hall is how I found my way into this whole story because ruins of this mansion are still standing today. Okay. At the time, it was the third largest private home in America. It was bigger than even the White House. It had 147 rooms. 147 rooms. It had 28 bathrooms, 24 fireplaces. It had six floors, three above ground, three below. It had 300 acres and a staff of 70 full-time gardeners just to maintain those grounds and make it stunning like an arboretum, a place that you would just walk through and marvel at the gardens. They 
rotated between they would only spend the shoulder seasons, spring and fall in Philadelphia. In winter, they went to Palm Beach, Florida, and they wintered in what was called the Palm Beach Colony. And in summer, because Philadelphia was too hot and stuffy, they would go to Maine, where they had another mansion called Wingwood House. And these people just rotated between their multiple homes in their multiple, multiple states. This is the level, it's a level of wealth and privilege that, that we can't at least my brain can't even imagine just of chauffeurs and cars and furs. And there's one scene where Francis's stepmother, it's about how she would put on her coat. And that is pulled from direct testimony from the governess to the children who came to work with the children and thought, oh my God, who are these people? Where the one maid would select which which fur coat Eva's stepmother would wear, and then she would carry it to the second maid, and she would present it to her, and then that maid would carry it to the top of the stairs, and she would prevent, present it to the valet, and then the valet would carry it down the stairs, and he would present it to the footman, who would then turn and present it to her her, um, her father, who would then place it around his wife's shoulders. And it's like five people are involved in this process of putting this woman's coat on. And this is the level of servants and wealth and privilege that these people have. And this is how they actually lived every single day. And when you think to yourself, you know, what could, what problems could these people probably possibly have when you have every imaginable, you know, option at your hand, hashtag champagne problems, hashtag white people problems. <laughs> but the thing is, is that ultimately we're all humans. And Francis has what I, you know, think is probably one of the most painful, has to deal with one of the most painful things I think any human has could ever possibly have to deal with. And it's a really fascinating look at humanity mm-hmm. and at, at people and at, you know, at choices, at choices. And again, at the choices you have and the choices you never really have and at, at fairness and at justice. What is fairness? What is justice? And who pays the price of all of that? And that's, you know, something I really wanted to look at. And I just wanted to circle back to Ella because that scene that you describe, Tim, I just want to tell you, I took that scene directly from Captain Carey's memoir. He described it in detail with pride. Oh, God. No apology, no self-consciousness. He said that he knew this was, quote, a colored crime because this kind of crime was only um, committed by black folks. And he said, so of course I'm gonna start with the black maid. Of course, you know, back then the term was colored. Black was actually a slur back then, mm-hmm. um, which I learned from Dr. Hugely. I actually didn't know that, but yes, it was the term black was considered a slur back then because to be darker was, was, was you know, considered undesirable back then. Um, and so the, the, the term, and actually my auntie Bernadine said when she was growing up, she was called colored and it was not a slur. That's just what she was. She said, Sarah, I've been through six different things since the time I was born. (laughs) Um, but it's still just me. And that really stuck with me. But Captain Carey, um, wrote in his memoir, which is called memoirs of a murder man. And I have a copy of it sitting right here next to me. And he said, well, of course I started with the, with the maid, with the, you know, the quote unquote colored maid, because this was a colored crime. And he said, I called her in here and I said, write me a list. I called her into my office. I handed her a pen and paper. I said, write me a list of every, quote, colored man, you know. And he was 
no self-consciousness, no awareness of the harm of that, the racism of that, the assumption of that, nothing. And that, I, I read that scene in his memoir, I don't even know how many times I read it, probably hundreds, because I couldn't, my 2023 brain <laughs> couldn't absorb that kind of racism, that kind of thought. And, um, and I rewrote that scene hundreds of times, because as you said, it's impossible to put yourself in that situation for any of us, but especially I think for me as a white woman. And how could I write that scene and how could I do it justice? And I think the, t the tendency is to want to write about the horrors of it, the barbaricness of it, the unfairness of it, the outrage of it, and to use these, you know, big horrified words because it is horrifying. Yes. But I found that was what was most powerful. And this actually goes back to the, how you started this entire conversation about the political nature of the, that component of the story is to just tell the facts. Because when you tell just the facts exactly as they happened with no hyperbole, you let it hit the reader exactly as it happened. And I think that ultimately is the most powerful thing. Well, there's a, um, there's a scandal and, and mind you, there's, there's a few scandals in here, but, but they talk about, you talk about the Harding administration and, and the, the thing that I was alluding to earlier was the, the, um, the card game with the teeth yes. and the, yeah. So tell us about that because that, the thing that Francis talks about with the tea set, which yes. absolutely blows my mind. Tell us uh, about that story, which, yes. which and just, I think you asked me that and I rambled. So I apologize. No, it's okay. That's okay. So when Francis's family built their 147 room mansion, mm -hmm. White Marsh Hall, President Harding was the first guest of note to come to that house. Mm -hmm. And he helped them to christen this house, open this house. And then they held a housewarming party with inviting a thousand of their nearest and dearest friends. Um, you know, hashtag basic, hashtag obvious. Uh, and that was not their first interaction with President Harding. So um, they they knew this man, you know, they, they knew the president. They had donated, her father was the chairperson of the Philadelphia Republican Committee. And so he was a huge fundraiser in that position as well as a private donor, donating untold sums of money. Um, both from J.P. Morgan, from his Philadelphia branch, from their own personal coffers, as well as raising money in Philadelphia for them. Now, Eva's stepmother is from Washington, D.C. She's a D.C. Social, socialite. She's known as the Widow Cromwell. She marries Francis's father. She moves to Philadelphia. But her kids, who are full grown, stay in D.C. So her daughter, who is Francis's stepsister, also very socially prominent, very, you know, wealthy and socializing with, you know, the who's who of the of the Washington, D.C. elite often socializes and hosts party for President Harding and for his, um, you know, <laughs> his cabinet. And President Harding was a consummate poker player. The guy loved to play poker. And there's all sorts of stories out there. He'd be out playing poker till 3, 4, 6 a.m. And his first lady, Florence Harding, would be waiting in the White House for him to come home. Hope he hadn't lost his shirt in another card game. <laughs> and so Francis's stepsister, Louise, hosts a small gathering at her little, you know, chateau in D.C. And uh, says, well, I like to play poker, too. With, you know, the, with the president. So it cut, you know, the, the hour grows late and they decide they're going to play man on man, one on one, a game of poker. 
and winner gets to name the stakes. Now, President Harding is a notorious Lothario. He is a cheat. He is a womanizer. He is a shame. He is having an affair with his wife's best friend, and he's having a simultaneous affair with a young woman um, who ends up having his only child, which was only proven to be his child, I think, like 10 years ago. It's crazy, through oh, wow. DNA. Okay. But anyway. He's all, he's, he's got his two mistresses already, but he's playing cards with, uh, Francis's stepsister Louise. Winner takes all, winner names the stakes. So she manages to beat him and he says, fine, what do you want? And she says, I want a set of White House China. And he <laughs> says, okay, fine. And he mess, he, he has his, the servants wrap up a set of, uh, of uh, blue and white China with this you know, corn and wheat pattern from, uh, you know, that was then, I think, uh, you know, 75 years old from one of the old, I think president, I have to look up now I'm blanking which president it was. He messengers it over. Was it Harrison? Harrison. Thank you. President Harrison. He messengers it over, but we all know that if he had won, he would have wanted something a little more scandalous from, from, from the shapely and sensuous Louise. Wow. No, no, see, that's that's the kind of stuff that if it happened today and it was one of our presidents that did this today, TMZ would be going on about it for about 24 hours straight. <laughs> oh, 24 days. We, I would be, Tim, I would be drinking that tea. I would be eating my popcorn and tuning in for news at 11. I would miss no yeah. detail yeah. on that. <laughs> And there would be minute details about, you know, what the order the cards were shuffled in, oh, uh, who got yeah. what and what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would be tweeting. I would be posting my every riveting thought. I would be there for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's what I love about it. These stories are true. And, you know, and it just you cannot make this up. So if I had written a fiction book, a reader might say, that would never happen. But because this is a true story, I can say, oh, but it did. But it did. Interesting. I love interesting. that. <laughs> I love it. There are stories, uh, like I said, in this book, folks, that, that I mean, are heart-wrenching. Um, there are stories in this book that, that pertain to this case that you – you shake your head and you go, I, I, I can't believe how frustrating that is, uh, yes. especially when it comes to the case itself, when trying to nail down a suspect. Um, it's amazing how slow the wheels of justice go. There's corruption galore in this case, <laughs> which there really is. Yeah. Which, which just uh, makes you wonder. And then the tendrils of corruption that, that go from, from the very bottom of society all the way to the top just uh, astound you as well. And it's, it's amazing uh, what's all involved uh, in this book. And, and again, Sarah, I, I, like I said, I, I, I tip my hat to you. Uh, Broadway Butterfly is the name of the book, a thriller. Again, we have a, a, a link to it in the description of this program. Now you have other, we're not leaving you yet, Sarah. You have other... <laughs> Uh, projects that are out there that I wanted to talk about before we leave you today. Um, you have a podcast out there in which you talk to some amazing, f- uh, fantastic people that are absolutely fascinating. Uh, tell us about the podcast. 
Yeah, so I host uh, Mystery and Thriller Maven. So every Monday for hashtag Mystery Monday, because Mondays can be murder, um, I host interviews to make them a little less painful. So every Monday I interview two featured authors whose books are coming out the next day. So it's a special pre-launch sneak peek into the book, and you get to ask them anything. And my whole uh, motto is that I'm going to introduce you to you know your favorite your favorite authors and your next favorite authors. So you get to chat with, you know, reader uh, with writers whose careers you've been following for years and meet, you know, what I hope will be your next favorite author. So I've gotten to interview some incredible people, as you said, everyone from Lee Child, Dean Koontz, Ruth Ware, Patricia Cornwell, um, you know, just people who are just legendary in the mystery and thriller world, um, as well as, you know, people who've just written their fir- their very first books who are just dipping a toe into these waters. And that's really you know, exciting. I love talking about writing and craft and mysteries. I mean, I was a Nancy Drew girl. I live for this stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, and I love, you know, talking about that and, and, and connecting readers and writers and just nerding out about mysteries and, you know, true crime. It's my jam. So who's the established author that absolutely can do no wrong in your eyes that, that you, you love every single project they do and you can't get enough of? Oh my goodness. Oh, that is a tough one, man. Um, Oh my God. There are so many writers whose careers I just really, really admire, whose books I really admire. Um, I read, you know, oh my gosh, I can't. It's it's Sophie's choice over here. You're asking me to make (laughs) an impossible choice. Tim, I had no idea this level of cruelty existed in you. Give me me three. Give me three. Okay. Okay. So I'll just say this year alone, I read this book called The Puzzle Master by Danielle Trasoni that blew my freaking mind. So I am a nerdy girl who loves research, who loves history. I loved the Da Vinci Code. Yep. And so for all of my fellow, you know, nerdy, nerdy readers who love to, to hone in on some little known historical fact and just, you know, yum, 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 devour that. Um, the Puzzle Master is this incredible story about um, this guy, Mike Brink, who was a high school football star growing up in Ohio. He takes a bad tackle. He sustains a traumatic brain injury on the field. And all of a sudden, his dreams of going to college and playing professional ball are not going to happen. But he wakes up with this. He's one of the very few, I think, seven people in the world to, to from a traumatic, traumatic brain injury, acquire savant syndrome. So some mm. people come out of this and they wake up and they can speak fluent Chinese. They can be concert pianists. The brain rewires in an extraordinary and unusual way. And he is one of them. So he wakes up as a puzzle master. He, there is no puzzle he can't immediately look at and know the answer to. So he becomes the world reigning puzzle champion. He's the New York Times puzzle creator. He's super famous, but he has a really hard time connecting with other human beings aside from his little dog, whose name is Conundrum. Nice. (laughs) Um, he, he, he really can't connect well to other humans anymore. Um, and so basically he gets a call from the psychiatrist at a women's prison in upstate New York, where one of her 
clients is a convicted murderess who was convicted five years ago of killing her lover and is five years into a life sentence and hasn't spoken a word since the night she was arrested has drawn a puzzle for her the prison psychologist and they believe that the puzzle holds the key not only to what to her innocence or not but also to um a life-changing world-changing uh uh secret and so he goes to the women's prison to uh to try to, to unveil, to, to solve that puzzle. And it just gets juicier from there. I mean, a puzzle master, a convicted murderess, I'm here for it. I love that book. Another book I absolutely loved, uh, The Leftover Woman by Jean Kwok. So Jean Kwok's an incredible writer. Um, she is a first-generation Chinese-American. She immigrated when she was five years old. She started working in a factory with the rest of her family at the age of five. And um, she writes this incredible book about this it's a, it's fiction, but it's about a young Chinese woman named Jasmine who, um, has, she gets married at a very young age. She has a baby. The, she, the, she is told the baby has died uh, immediately after childbirth. But then she finds out five years later that the baby was given up for adoption by her husband because he wanted a son. This is, and she, it basically it's about China's one child policy. Okay. Um, and so she comes to the U.S to get that child back and it just gets crazier from there. Um, so I really enjoyed that book as well. Wow. Juicy. Wow. Okay. Juicy. Are there some up and comers that you know of that you would tell people you absolutely have to check them out that, that you know, they're going to be huge. Oh my gosh. Um, so I really love this British author. Her name is Nadine Matheson. She's um, a lawyer, but they call them barristers over there. And I just yes. think that sounds so much cooler. I yeah. don't know why. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> does, it does. Everything yeah. with a British accent just sounds so much cooler. Yeah. And she writes um, this, This her first book was called The Jigsaw Man. And it's about um, a detective and um, who is pursuing a serial killer. And I just love this detective, Angelica. I'm like, I feel like Angelica and I are best friends. I don't know why. Um, and so Nadine has put out um, three books in the series. And I just, I love Nadine and I'm so excited about her. So I think she's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger. Nice. All right. Well, there you go. All right. So something for everyone, psychological thriller, nerdy, research loving Da Vinci Code books and a serial killer. And, you know, we got something for I got something for everyone. Yes. <laughs> I'm your book butler. There you go. Hey, I love that term book butler. That's that's awesome. So there you go. Uh, we'll have a link to to mystery and uh, thriller mavens uh, as well in the description of this program so people can check it out. Uh, we want people to, to uh, check that out as well and, and, and get to listen to that program because it sounds like you've got some amazing stuff over there as well. And uh, you're just moving and shaking, Sarah. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always hustling, Tim. I'm just over here doing the hustle. <laughs> there you go. Now we just need to get chipmunks in your life. Oh my God. I love chipmunks. I am obsessed with chipmunks. I've always been obsessed with chipmunks. They're cute little fat cheeks and how they stuff them with nuts. Oh my God. I'm obsessed. <laughs> so I, may have I want to... you to start a chipmunk channel, Tim. Well, we talked about that off air. I may, I may have to somehow incorporate it in with, uh, maybe with like a true crime Tuesday chipmunk thing or a dark. Oh my God, it could be called chipmunk Tim thing. and the chipmunks. Tim and the chippers. <laughs> Tim and the chippers. Uh, maybe. Oh my god. I, maybe. I yeah. <gasps> that would be so cute. 
I, you know, I, I, uh, I, I do have plenty of photos. I don't have a lot of video. I mean, I do have the one video I didn't tell you about that I've told our audience about. I have uh, from last year, I have a video of Wicket barking. Well, it's more him just chirping, but he's, he's, <laughs> he's barking at the, the kids getting off the school bus because they're too loud. He was, oh he, was a little, he was a little he was a little curmudgeon last year, um, but he used to he used to sit on the porch with me and when people were because we have we have a little girl across the street who's always yelling. <laughs> it, she's she's very over dramatic and you can hear her. It's almost like everything is a Shakespearean tragedy across the street. <laughs> Uh, like Othello is going on and someone's getting stabbed all the time and you'll never take me alive. And she's always, <laughs> you know, yelling something and she's playing with, I think she's playing with brothers and sisters or cousins or somebody because there's always, there always something, some warp drive is always being disabled and then someone's <laughs> getting stabbed and then someone's getting shot and the dog is always barking and, Wicked or Spud will be sitting there and they'll just look across the street like, can you be quiet already? You know, just kind of that, they give him that look. But last year, Wicked had had it because I think it was too hard on his ears. So he would sit on the step and he would he would chirp at him. Oh my God, that's so cute. So I have this like 15 to 30 second video, which is available on my social media of Wicked. And I, I put, I put, a, I put a, a, a reel up of Wicket just barking at the school bus because the kids were getting off the school bus. And he used to, every day he used to line up on the, on the front step and he would wait for the school bus to get there. And when the kids would get off the school bus, he'd chirp at them. <laughs> I had no idea that chipmunks were so interactive. That is so cute. I can't wait to go find that reel immediately. Yeah. So he's just, they get off the bus and you can hear him getting off the bus and talking and he's just going, cheep, 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 cheep. <laughs> Cheep. And when he's cheeping, he's cheeping so hard, his entire body is lurching forward as he cheeps. So he's really into it. He's really just like, shut up, shut up, shut up. Oh, my God. He's like, the, he's like there goes the neighborhood. That's right. You kids, you need to go home. You need to get jobs. Oh, my God. He's a grumpy little one-year-old chipmunk. That's right. Back in my day, we were collecting seeds. <laughs> Oh my god! I'll be watching that for the next two to three hours on repeat. <laughs> oh, it just repeats. It just—it looks like he's doing it nonstop. But yeah, <laughs> so you'll get tired of it. And I'm oh my sure, god! I'm so excited. I'm sure your uh, your animals around the house will get tired of hearing it too. They'll probably—it'll hurt their little ears. Oh, I'll listen to it with headphones. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, I have uh, that one, and then um, I have this one. Uh, I was gonna, I was gonna play it for you off here. I might just play it for you now, and we could just edit it out. But uh, there's this one uh, that I have from the other day where it's just it's wicked um, collecting leaves. Oh my god! I'm gonna go right now and look. And uh, he's well. I, I don't think I, I haven't posted it yet. Um, but it's just uh, let's see. Is this the one of him? I have one of. Uh, oh no! You're not. You're you're gonna absolutely fall in love with this one. This one oh my is, god, I'm so excited. This one is just, this one is just, um, see, that's just, uh, that's oh. Logan just snurfing for seeds right there. Oh my god, he's so cute. Yeah, and then, uh, and then I have one of, then uh, I have one of, I have to find the one of uh, Wicket actually um, 
collecting leaves. I'll find that one when we're off air. Um, but yeah, we got to get you some chipmunks. I, I mean, that's I just need, all there is to it. Yeah, yeah. I need chipmunks. I might uh, maybe uh, maybe they find a a lady chipmunk and knock her up, and I'll send you a baby in the mail. Oh my god, a baby chipmunk! Oh my god, that would be so cute. Yeah, you'll have, you'll have to raise it though. I mean, you'll have to you know that's that's just the deal. But once they're past six weeks, they're looking for a, a human anyway. So. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God. Challenge accepted. The there chipmunk challenge is accepted. There you go. So uh, that'll be your, that'll be your next assignment. You won't have time to write books because you'll be feeding it all the time. Um, I'll be a full-time chipmunk mom. That's fine. There you go. So you'll probably get one book out every four years or so. Uh, Cause they'll take all your attention. I mean, you'll get, you'll have time during the winter, but I mean, that, that'll right. be about it. Yeah. No, cause then I'll be in torpor, torpor too. That's right. <laughs> I'll be resting. That's right. You'll, you'll be in sweatpants laying out on the couch and eating, eating cheese doodles. That'll be your, uh, that'll be your life in the winter. So that'll be my new life. Exactly. I have to rest after all that chipmunk momming. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's pretty exhausting. So, yeah, I don't get much done anymore. So why why would you i mean all you need is chipmunks that's right that's all you need that's that's all you need that and the new book broadway butterfly by sarah Deville. that's all you need thank you so much tim <laughs> thank you sarah i appreciate you being on and and uh again i people will look forward to this book it's a good book it's a good book yeah. so there you go Yay. folks it's time for us to lighten things up a bit it's time for us to bring in beer city bruiser and it's time now for dumb crimes and stupid criminals it's it's crayon news story time what happened with this dude christ bearer i heard he uh cut his penis off and then jumped off a balcony Suspect pulls gun from butt, shoots twice at Denver police. What is your emergency? Uh, I need help. And what's the problem? I'm too high. You're too high? Yeah. It's that time once again, the time you all look forward to. It's time for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. And with that, we need a co-host. We bring in the co-host with the most, the BCB, the big cuddly bear himself, Beer City Bruiser. Bruiser, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. Enjoying the nice fall weather here in North Carolina. It's getting cooler and, uh, down there, is it? Yeah, but, dude, it's 67 right now. Like, I'm fine with 67. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's it's gotten even cooler up here. Uh, we're, uh, we're heading into the 50s this week. We're heading into the 70s and 80s this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's getting uh, chillier. We'll put it that way. Uh, much chillier. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. miss it. Yeah. Don't miss it at all. End you have the, all that snow, all the ice, all the frost. You take all of it. End of the week. We're talking forties. You, you take it. Yeah. End of the week. We're talking eighties. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. The it, only downside of that is, is since we're supposed to have a great weekend, weather wise, mm -hmm. Mrs. Bruiser has a list of chores for me to do outside. Ooh, so. Ooh I'm so sorry, buddy. <laughs> So I'll tie the pups up outside and do what I can do. Yeah. Because it's getting so cold outside, I think my buddies might be going to bed this weekend. <laughs> yeah. I think that might be it. Yeah. They were busy this weekend. They were out there. They were uh, getting the seeds uh, put away. And, and um, I had one moment with Spud. We were sitting out on the porch. He was eating a blueberry, and he was kind of staring off into space. And you know how little kids, when they're real, real tired... Oh yeah, you know they kind of they get they 
get that staring off into space like I can't keep my eyes open anymore, boss, that type of yep. look. Yeah, Spud had that look in his eye. So I was like, oh, <laughs> not too much longer now. Yep. So I have a feeling it's probably uh, if they make it to Halloween, though, I, I think we'll be lucky. Yeah. Yeah. So it's coming. It's coming close. So it's, uh, that's for sure. Although, you know what? You want to hear something really, really sweet. And then we'll, we'll get on with dumb crime, stupid criminals. Sure. Spud's been leaving daily tributes underneath my back pillow on my chair on the porch. So I, I get the like every pooping. No, 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 not pooping. No, no, that's not sweet. That's horrible. Um, no, no, well, no. that's the tributes Talia and Ziggy leave us. So. No, 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 no. <laughs> he's been leaving. Uh, he's been leaving sunflower seeds. Oh, that's cool. Make sure that you're all stocked up for the winter yeah. for when you hibernate. Oh, yeah, look at yeah. him. Yeah. So he's just, you know, he's making sure I'm I'm ready to go for winter. Yeah, he knows. He See, he's he's not a stupid chipmunk. He knows where the he, don't bite the hand that feeds you, you right, know. Right. Make sure you're okay. Yeah. Because then when he wakes up and you wake up, yeah. you can feed him again. You can, you know, he gets it. That's right. I love the perspective of a little chipmunk. It's, yeah. it's, uh, yeah. So he he's just, like, here, these, these will tide you over while you hibernate. That's right. <laughs> the rest are for me. That's but right. These, these are for you. Either that or he's been storing his seeds there and then they're gone every day and he's like, damn it, someone's getting to my seeds. Um, <laughs> you know, so he thinks that somebody's stealing his seeds from underneath my pillow. Um, but, yeah, so he's been le- and and he left intern Yoko some seats on on her chair too. So, so yeah, there's and an almond the other day. So so See? yeah, he likes her a little bit more. I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I just got seeds. She got seeds in an almond. So yeah, he's like, you know what? You're cool, but she she's the shit. So yeah, so <laughs> she gets an almond. So yeah, so he just was you know a little. Little thank you, I guess. We got little thank you gifts. So, and it, he did it for a few days in a row. Well, nice. Yeah, yeah. He wants to make sure you're all chubbed up for the winter. Yeah. Make sure I'm ready to go so I can take that long winter nap. Little does he know, somebody around here's got to work to make uh, make money for all those seeds. <laughs> yeah. As much as we'd love to have a long winter nap. <laughs> oh, God, would I ever. I'm a, you can hear it in my voice today. I I, I didn't have a good night last night, so yeah. I'm sure you're saying off air. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to the makers, uh, close circuit to the makers of Munjaro. Although your drug is much better than Ozempic, it still makes me throw up in the middle of the night the first day or two after I take your shot. <laughs> they can't ever make a drug that's like you know. That's good a, for humans. <laughs> yeah, good good for humans. It, it, it's great for my blood sugars, but it's I still I'm still having issues with the side effects. So see, that's that's the pharmaceutical get ya is yeah. you can take this pill for this, but then you need to take this pill for the side effects of that pill. Yep, and then you need to take this pill for the side effects of that pill, and then you got to take this shot for the side effects of that shot, and eventually you're just all around taking care of everything. Yeah, yeah, then, you know, I, I'm trying to remember the, the saying my grandpa had, something about uh, they got you coming and going, something about fist something, fist farts, something colds and assholes or something. I, I don't remember what it was, but it was it was a good one. I got If I ever remember, I'll have to ask Uncle Bob. He'll remember what it was. He'll, he'll know what the line was. But uh, we got to get going with uh, Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. Boy, do we have stories today. Do we? Good. Yes. And one in particular 
that a lot of you, a lot of you sent along, and I got to thank you for this. Again, our audience comes through once again, Bruiser. Nice. Uh, has to do with the fact that stuffed animals are not safe in Arkansas. I will let you know there's a not safe for work section on the end of today's program. And let's just say you'll never think of stuffed animals in Arkansas the same way again. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, and, I don't and, really think of stuffed animals in Arkansas, but now I'm going to. Let's just put it this way. Uh, back when the old host was on this program, we talked we talked about this subject. Um, and it it got a lot of, let's just put it this way, it got a lot of listener feedback. Okay. Um, and let's just say from the fairer sex, they said that they actually had some, it's a good way of putting it. They they actually, some of them had a little bit of a sexual turn on from their stuffed animals. Okay. Good for them. Yeah. See, I think to guys, this is kind of a weird thing. Yeah. Although the, you know, molesting a stuffed animal in public seems to be a guy thing. Um, I've never found any aroused. I've known, I knew, you're right, she was a girl. Yeah. I knew she was aroused by certain fabrics that the stuffed animals were made from. It wasn't the stuffed animal itself. Yeah. You know, like she had a velveteen bear. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know. But there are, I, 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 when we did that segment, there was a fair amount of women who came forward and said, yeah, I had a thing for my teddy bear back in the day. <laughs> and it was like, you, you what? It was like, yeah, sure. You know, it was, it was me. I was their teddy bear. Oh, well, yeah. yeah they, they put your face on the teddy bear and then off they well, went. Well, I got those, those, well, here, let me show you. I got the, the wrestle buddy. Right. If, if any of the women are. Yeah. Looking to that's <laughs> true. Soft and squishy. This is a good. This is a good part in the program to mention. You do have a wrestle buddy out there, a stuffed yep. wrestle buddy. If you'd like to have yourself a little bruiser loving, if you know what I mean. So there you go. By yeah, the way, if you uh, hear, if you brothers hear, brothers good door, uh, brothers g a d d o r yeah. dot com, and you can. I think they're they're real inexpensive and they're amazing. And they ship worldwide, so that's right. If you hear an alarm in the background, that do 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 do, ignore it. My uh, my Dexcom. Take your pills, Tim. <laughs> my my Dexcom's not working today, so it thinks that my blood sugar is low when it's not. Um, <laughs> I'm you take your pills, Tim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so brothersgador.com, and you can get your own wrestle buddy. That's uh, so for the. For the guys out there, you can wrestle with Bruiser. For the gals out there, you can wrestle with Bruiser. We're not discriminating either way. No. Yeah. No. So there you go. Yeah. Men, women, pets, whatever you want. Sure. Go get go get one. Yeah. There you go. Or two. Or two. There you go. But buy two. They're 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 reasonably priced. So well, they have me and Malonis. So you can buy me individually, him individually, or for a discount, you can get us as a tag team. Mm. And make you fight each other. Yeah, you can. They have it. other. They have other tag teams. Like they have the British Bulldogs. They have the Road Warriors. They have Brody. Oh, they have Dreamer Raven. You could do the. Uh, uh, you could do the. You could do the dream matchup. You know, Road Warriors versus the uh, Bouncers. Yeah, yeah. Someone put on uh, with their site that they bought a Bruiser Brody and a Beer City Bruiser one, and that was their dream matchup. I'm like, whoa, me too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for real. There you yeah. go. 
Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah, I like that. That's good. Well, let's move on with Dumb Crime Stupid Criminals today. We're going to start off kind of not so funny and get into the very funny. Okay. Okay. This one has to, well, I suppose this one, I should say, has a morbid sense of humor to it. We'll put it that way. Okay. Your dad is a CO. Yes, he was. Okay. I think he'll find the humor in this one. Okay. Okay. A California serial killer says he murdered a child rapist cellmate over bad hygiene. Oh, okay. Well, well, good good for him. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I got to think there's other solutions here. Yeah, but you know, those child rapists don't do well in prison. No, they don't. No, I, I got to think any, any child crimes do not do well. But it's it's just funny to me that's a serial killer. He didn't do it because he was a child rapist. He did it because he had bad hygiene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think maybe that was just the excuse. I, you know, I don't see most serial killers don't have feelings. So, like, they're not going to care if this guy's doing that to children, you know? You know, but think- you don't brush your teeth. That, that pisses them off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You don't. You don't brush up with Crest. Then, by God, you got it coming. Um, you don't think that maybe they don't have a soft spot? No. No. I don't. I don't know any serial killer that has a soft spot. Really? Yeah. Because when I had when I had uh, M. William Phelps on last week, we, we were talking about he, he the different serial killers he had uh, um, interviewed. And he had he had said, I don't know why the word interviewed is so hard for me today. Um, and he had mentioned that when it came to like a one serial killer that he had interviewed and he talked about the birth of his child and he said, I would do anything to protect my child. He just didn't feel love for it. Yeah, no, I get that. Yeah. And, and some have a code, you know, where they don't yeah. hurt children. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it doesn't anger them to if you want to. You know, I don't think that this this particular guy being a child rapist angered the serial killer hmm. in, in a way it would anger you and me. You right, know what I mean? Right. Oh, no, no, no. I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't mean that at all. But it just gives him an excuse to. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. sure he, you know, he's probably looking good in the prison right now because he. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, even though his excuse is the hygiene, which I firmly believe that could have been 100, you know, because he could have been a weird, clean fetish guy, you know, and that's. Very true. Very true. A California serial killer who murdered two family members and then five random strangers told authorities he killed his pedophile cellmate because he was a slob. According to local reports and court documents obtained by Fox News Digital, 52-year-old Ramon Escobar was charged with killing cellmate Juan Villanueva. Who's all of or was all of 53 years old in September, months after prison guards found the convicted child rapist dead in his cell. When an officer arrived to check on Villanueva, Escobar allegedly, without being questioned, confessed out of the blue. Well, of course, he's not going anywhere. Yeah, he didn't care. Escobar told the officer, according to a probable cause affidavit, hey, I'm sorry, Jenkins, I killed him. <laughs> That's pretty. Hey, you're gonna walk in the cell, find dead body. It was totally me. Like, yeah, this guy stunk. <laughs> like, smell him. He's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, now he stinks even worse. If you know yeah, what I mean. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Villanueva was sentenced to life in prison last year for sexually assaulting a child under 14 and arrived in February. 
just days before his sling, according to the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, a guard at Northern Kern State Prison found Villanueva unresponsive at 8.49 a.m. on February 24th. That, according to authorities, Escobar was in the cell at the time. Escobar had been sentenced to multiple life prison sentences, plus 124 years in May of 2022, and arrived in Kern in December. Villanueva received a sentence of life with the possibility of parole in October of 2022 and arrived in the Kern prison on February 2nd. The two men were being held together in the medium security facility there temporarily as California corrections officials prepared to move them into permanent placements. The same facility has hosted Tori Lenez, who is the rapper who shot Megan the Stallion in the foot at a pool party, and Phil Spector, the music producer turned killer, who shot actress Lana Clarkson in the face at his mansion. Uh, newly unveiled court documents allege that Escobar gave a confession and a motive for the slaying. He strangled Villanueva because of his bad hygiene. <laughs> he told that... Uh, Oh, I'm sorry, that's according to the Bakersfield-based KGET-TV. It's KGET-TV. <laughs> they get the story. We get it right. Uh, he was already serving two life sentences without parole, plus another 124 years for seven murders in California and Texas. Escobar killed his aunt and uncle in Texas before fleeing to Southern California, where he robbed and killed five men in a 14-day span in 2018, the remains of Dina and I believe this is Rogelio uh, Escobar have never been found. Oh, a, yeah. A plea deal spared him from the Texas death penalty, and he is serving life sentences in California. The other victims have been identified as 51-year-old Juan Antonio Ramirez, who died from complications of the 2018 attack in 2021, 24-year-old Brandon Rideau. Uh, 59-year-old Kelvin Williams, 39-year-old youth sports coach Stephen Cruz, and 63-year-old Jorge Martinez. Okay. Yeah. So there you go. There's that first story. I wonder why he won't let them know where the remains are. That always... I I get it because they want to hold some sort of power. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they'll use this against them. Like, hey, we'll give you lesser charges for this if you tell us where you're... Yeah. Not that he cares. It might be his last literal get out of jail free card yeah yeah will run was on the back of the license plate <laughs> i think okay. i think you know where we're going here i i, I have a feeling i i think we do an 18 year old flees the california highway patrol and smashes into an suv carrying a family in santa rosa Hence the fact that they maybe shouldn't have chased him because it said "Will run on the back of his license plate. Yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, okay, you get in front of him, and then when I pull him over, he ain't going anywhere. Yeah, I think spike strips were in order there. Yes. We go to Santa Rosa, where an 18-year-old Santa Rosa man fled a California Highway Patrol stop and smashed into the back of an SUV carrying two adults and a child Saturday afternoon, this according to the CHP as they announced it on Facebook. 18-year-old Marcus Burton, who was driving a Ford Mustang with its license plate covered with a sign stating, Will Run. (laughs) God. I wonder what this guy's going to do if we pull him over. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure sit and talk. Do you think he found that bumper sticker and goes, Oh, this is definitely my statement to everybody. I'm going to... 
put this right on my car. They will know I'll never get pulled over again. And if I do and I run, can't be part charged for it because I told them I was going to run. <laughs> and the fact that he was blasting Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen in the car. <laughs> I had a kind of a cheap trick thing going there. So I always think that if I ever ran from the police, I'd play Panama by Van Halen. Oh, that's a good one, too. Yeah. yeah, you get right to that good guitar solo where he slows it down a little bit. Yeah, you slow it down, think the police are going to get you. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> they're too busy listening. And they're like, "Hey, we, he's slowing down. We're going to get him." But then when it kicks in, damn, you're gone. Because that that just yeah. when it kicks. Oh yeah. When Eddie, you know, when he kicks, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it goes. So. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and then when you when you crash at the end, you could play somebody get me a doctor. <laughs> Even though it's about drugs, but yeah. right, yeah, yeah. Uh, the driver reached speeds of over 100 miles an hour, Bruiser, during the incident before it slammed into the SUV on Highway 101 near the Mendocino Avenue exit, according to the CHP. The three victims were transported to a nearby hospital and treated for minor to moderate injuries. Burton's vehicle was involved in other incidents involving multiple agencies. Uh, said David Durrut, a CHP spokesman. Nothing as extreme as yesterday, he added. Really? I, I, I didn't know there were rating things. I didn't know that there was like a uh, an American Idol scale. Here, so. <laughs> I'm running away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Burton was booked into the Sonoma County Jail on charges for evading police, evading police causing injury and child endangerment, all felony charges. Video of the harrowing incident was posted on Instagram showing the Mustang slamming into the SUV. It also shows the driver being arrested, as well as another male suspect who climbed out of the wrecked Mustang. Durrut said the other passenger was the 17-year-old male who was released to his parents, which is the most embarrassing thing they could do. <laughs> so there you go. You told my mom. <laughs> <laughs> my mom's totally going to ground me, dude. It's like that great scene in uh, Scream when Matthew Lillard, Lillard's on the phone. Do you really tell my parents about this? <laughs> mom <laughs> and dad are going to kill me. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that they did. And that was all improvised on his part. That That's a good improvised scene, by the way. Excellent yeah. scene. Speaking of teens getting in trouble, a woman pleads guilty to hiring teens to try to kill her ex-husband in a murder-for-hire plot. Now, Hiring teens is so 90s. It is, and I understand, you know, wanting to get good help for cheap. Yeah. But teens? Yeah, I'm not going, that's like what the, what was the teacher that had the, the her boyfriend, quote-unquote. That was the... What was that? Uh, Letourneau, wasn't it? Mary Kay Letourneau? Was she the one or was she the one that just slept with the, the kid and went to prison and came back? Well, she slept with the kid and came back, but wasn't, didn't she? But there was the one where she had the, the boys kill her husband. But like, my, my point is, you're asking guys, <laughs> high school students who struggle with algebra to put together a murder plot, <laughs> which they're going to get away with it. You're not going to get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. They have a hard time showering on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. True. True. Yeah. Well, you know what they, but I, I suppose they think, well, if I lay it out for them, like I lay out their clothes in the morning, <laughs> maybe they'll get it right. 
Uh, yeah. I've raised teenagers. They don't get it right. Yeah, it's not so much. Unless you do it yourself. True. Washington State woman has pleaded guilty to hiring two teens to attempt to kill her ex-husband in a murder for hot plot, murder for hire plot, murder for plot hire. Yeah, that didn't make sense. Uh, Sharon Rose Kelly pleaded guilty to solicitation to commit murder in the second degree in King County Superior Court on Wednesday and faces up to 13 years in prison. She allegedly hired two teens to kill her husband, Baron Lee, who sounds like a villain in a cheap movie. I was going to say, he sounds like a comic book villain. He does, doesn't he? I need you to kill Baron Lee. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She paid them $13,000. See, like I said, two teens, $13,000 at $6,500 a piece. That's pretty cheap. But you get what you pay for. Yeah, true. You're not getting much. Why do you think all the the hitmen on that? Yelp for hitmen charge so much money because they're professionals. <laughs> Yelp for hitmen. <laughs> but even then, it's like, you know, starting rates like, what is it, 10 grand or 5 grand or whatever it I, is. I haven't tried to hire somebody for murder yet, <laughs> but we'll go with 10 grand. <laughs> if, if, if this comes up and I'm, I'm talking to somebody, they offer, they start off higher than 10 grand and be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> Easy there, Poncho. Yeah, I, I haven't, it's not like I'm out shopping either, but, you know. I, I well, we can go, yeah, 10 grand, sure. 10 grand, yeah. <laughs> sounds right. Uh, both teens were 17 at the time of the shooting and pleaded guilty to lesser charges. Uh, the woman's husband, the evil Baron Lee, was shot nine times by the two teens. Way to go, Tupac. Uh, outside his apartment complex in Bellevue on July 10th of 2020, he said, I heard a pop. I thought it was a firework. I looked to the left. I didn't see anything. I looked to the right. The second shot goes off, hits my arm, he told NBC News affiliate KING, the king. The king. Actually, I know somebody who works at the king. Oh, really? Yeah. Goes by the first name of Burger. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. No, I've actually met somebody who works at KING. Yeah, through a mutual friend. Oh, okay. Uh, first shot. Oh, yeah, I said first shot to the chest. Uh, oh, first shot to my chest. I was like, oh crap, what am I going to do? And dove into my car, putting my head underneath the steering wheel. And then he unloaded another five shots to my left side. See, can't do it right. <laughs> I don't know. It seems like the kid has a pretty good idea. But the dude lived. Well, okay, so he didn't shoot vital areas or organs. Yeah, so he's terrible. He said he thinks his ex-wife is not receiving a harsh enough sentence. Baron Lee chuckled and said, (laughs) if this goes through and the judge goes along with this plea agreement, my son's only going to be 17 when she gets out. It's not enough time. She needs more time. I must plan on taking over the world now. Was that evil enough? That was very evil. Was it? Uh, Mr. Lee and his ex-wife were embroiled in a custody battle over their disabled son, then six. Oh, that's that's sad. Yeah. Uh, the child reportedly had a trust fund from a settlement after he sustained brain damage as an infant. Oh, poor kid. Yeah. Mr. Lee said his ex-wife was seeking that money, but Miss Kelly uh, had denied that this was her motive for the attempted killing. Miss Kelly uh, was linked to the crime after police found a tracking device on the victim's car and used online records to connect her to that device. Speaking of not being very smart. Oh, why? So, okay. 
Yeah, so evidently she didn't cover her tracks very well. No. Mr. then assembled the other villains at the Hall of Injustice where they planned a counterattack. <laughs> I mean, the Legion that, of Dooms is together. Yeah, the Legion of Doom then got together. That that last part I made up. Just Baron <laughs> Lee. Sure? Baron Lee is just such a good villain name. It is. I love it. Yeah. I think I'm going to have one of the students when they debut the heel of you. That that is a great name. It's a great gimmick. Baron Lee. Yeah. Yeah. Have him come out with like a cape and a and he military to, hat. He always has to ball up his fist and. He has to have a glove on his fist. Right. Yeah, just the one glove. And it's got to be the glove that has the fin that comes off of it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you know what his finishing move should be? The claw. Yes. <laughs> I got obsessed. I got obsessed this weekend because there's a documentary out there of Baron Von Raschke. Oh, okay. And it, it actually showed up here at the Twin Cities Film Festival. Twin Cities Film Festival is going on now this month. Okay. And it was made by um, a director who used to direct uh, used to direct music videos for Prince and some other uh, music uh, music artists. He's okay. a fa- famous music video director, but he put together this this um, he put together this documentary called The Claw, along with uh, Carl Raschke, who's who's uh, Jim Jim's son and Jim who's Baron von Raschke Jim right. Raschke and they debuted it and it's supposed to be wonderful it's supposed to be this amazing documentary on his life okay and it's got footage from the AWA it's got footage from uh is it an independent film or is it being released yes, on something yes independent film okay but you can't watch it anywhere it's not on Netflix it's not yeah, I was wondering where it was cuz I love watching those yeah. little documentaries yeah and it, well, it was released in two thousand two. Well, yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not old. I mean, it's but it's got all this great old footage. It's got footage of him with Andre. It's got footage with uh, him in in uh, in Texas with Ric Flair. It's got footage from here in Minneapolis. Um, and it's got it's got funny outtakes with him in Okerland. Um, I I want to see it so badly. It's got footage from him and at home with his two kids, like him. Oh, so they actually show the other, the Jim side of the Baron. Yeah, yeah, a lot of just Jim. That's cool. I like, see, that's what I like about that. Like when The Undertaker had his documentary come out, it was really cool because you got to see the man behind the character. It's got a lot of eight millimeter film footage of like Christmas with the Rashkis. Nice. Yeah. And so I want to see this desperately. It's called The Claw. And you just, (laughs) but you can't find it. And it's a shame. You have to contact the film festival, see where you can see it. You know, I didn't think of that, but I'm going to. Yeah. yeah I'm going to. I'm, I'm going to see if they, maybe they'll bring it back, too, because it was in a COVID year. Uh, yeah. 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 So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, let's continue on, folks. I know I got, I, I got on a tangent there, but uh, a woman fatally shot at a baby shower after an altercation with another woman. Now, this, this is a baby shower. This is what I call a party. A baby shower and bullets. <laughs> I would go to this baby shower then. Yeah, that's if, right. if this is what's happening. That's right. A baby shower and bullets. Uh, of course, it happened in Detroit. Of course. Yeah. It's uh, where, where baby showers are hardcore. A woman in Detroit was... <laughs> <laughs> A woman in Detroit was shot and killed. We shouldn't, we shouldn't laugh at that. Uh, a woman no, in Detroit sad, was... Yeah, the yeah. fact that it's a... 
hardcore baby hardcore, shower. A hardcore baby shower. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of funny. Uh, a woman in Detroit was shot and killed at her niece's baby shower after an argument with a longtime friend. That's not a friend. No, you're not friends then if she shoots you. No. Like, I'll punch my friends in the arm, hit them with a chair, but not shoot them. No, no, no. That's a little too extreme. 53-year-old Phoebe Williams was fatally shot Sunday by a woman who hasn't been publicly identified, although you probably should do that. Yeah. Detroit Police Captain Donna McCord said at a press conference on Monday, Williams' son then allegedly hit the shooting suspect with a car. Yes! (laughs) Now that's how you finish him off. I'm going to one-up you. (laughs) You're going to shoot my mom? I'm going to hit you with a goddamn car. Yeah, either way, you are going to be hurting just like my mom. That's right. He was also taken into custody. I say you let him go. Yeah. Uh, 53-year-old Phoebe Williams, of course, shot and killed in Detroit on Sunday. Williams' niece, Shavonda Carter, told local news outlet WXYZ. Oh, no, come on. It's true, yeah. That's just lazy. Sounds made up, I know. Uh, That her aunt and the alleged shooter had been friends since they were children. Now, that's sad. Yeah. Uh, Carter said, I don't understand why she would even pull a gun out. Family members told the outlet that the women were arguing with or about one of Williams's sons, who was also at the baby shower. The alleged shooter, who had not been invited to the shower, had reportedly accused Williams's son of a crime and reported him to the police days earlier, according to WXYZ, the alphabet. So she crashed the party. Yeah. Just. To show up, to, like, let let the baby shower be, you know what I mean? That has nothing to do with anything. Right, right, right. Uh, according to WXYZ, the alphabet, Williams hit the other woman, who then pulled out a gun and allegedly shot her. Uh, y'all could have just fought. You didn't have to pull a gun, Carter told WXYZ. There's kids in the house. It's a lot of people in the house. So why would you pull out a gun? was the quote from Carter. McCord described the shooting as senseless gun violence and noted that the alleged shooter had a license to carry a concealed firearm. Okay, it doesn't mean you have a license to shoot somebody. That's right. You did, that doesn't give you the right. If something happens and you need police assistance, please call us. Let us deal with the situation, McCord said. Don't take the matter into your own hands. If you can get away, get away. Call 911. Let us come in and handle the situation. McCord said the alleged shooter fled the scene and called police to turn herself in. The victim's son allegedly followed her to the police precinct and hit her with his car as she got out of her vehicle. In the police. See, that's that's Detroit. (laughs) That's balls right there. That's balls. Yeah. Uh, The woman was taken to the hospital in serious condition, McCord said. The shooting suspect and Williams' son are both awaiting charges. In a statement to Huffington Post, A spokesperson for the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office said they have received two warrant requests in relation to the incident and that more information would be available when a decision to charge is made. Interesting story. That's all I got to say. I just don't get why are you going to crash a baby shower to bring this up? And then is it really worth shooting somebody over? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't imagine. I can't imagine what crime. This guy did in order to come into a baby shower with a gun. Yeah. Only in Detroit. They go hard. That's right. They go hard. Let's uh, lighten it up a little bit. Uh, this one sent in a lot of these stories. Uh, there are a lot of stories that were sent in by Tony. So I'm, I'm giving him one, one shout out instead of a ton of them. Uh, James <laughs> sent in a story this week. Um, 
uh, let's see, uh, Margot sent in a story this week. I've got I got a lot of names to throw out there, but to everybody who sent in the story this week, I want to just say a hearty thank you. Thank you so yes, much for doing thank that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, a man poses as a mannequin in a storefront and goes on a shopping spree after the mall closes. I heard this story. This is an amazing story because it wasn't like he just did it. <laughs> for you know 10 minutes <laughs> yeah yeah this this was a this was planned out an alleged yeah. an alleged thief found a clever way to hide from authorities in poland posing in a store window as a mannequin a 22 year old with a bag in his hand froze motionless pretending to be a mannequin in front of a shop window police say in a translated statement in this way he wanted to avoid being exposed by the cameras that's the quote from the spokesperson Police said that the clever thief posed in the window display motionless until the mall store closed. Once the customer had left and the mall doors were secure, the man broke from his stance and robbed a jewelry stand. According to police, authorities said that the thief came back for round two on another occasion. This time he ate his fill, that's the quote, at one of the food stations before stealing a new outfit. After Holding that pose for such a long time makes you hungry. (laughs) <laughs> it can, I guess. Sure. Uh, afterwards, he returned to have some more food. Polish authorities said, what do you think? Did he have uh, kolachkis or what did he have? What did he, what uh, did he no, have? I think he had... Um, Polish sausage? Oh, that would be good. A little Polish sausage sauerkraut deal? Yeah, I, I like sauerkraut. Polish sausage, either. yeah. Uh, it, it's too bitter. Maybe some milky. Oh, yeah, yeah. That'd be good, yeah. Uh, Polish authorities said that uh, eventually the man's luck ran out and he was noticed by mall security guards. He was arrested and police said he could face up to 10 years in prison. This was not the man's first time stealing a shop or stealing from a shopping mall. According to police, police said that he took money from a cash register and attempted to steal other items after it closed. So now the security guards have to go around with a pin and poke every mannequin <laughs> before they close the doors. <laughs> it's part of their uh, rounds. They have to just, yep. yeah. yeah. So we got the new guy there like, oh, so I have to lock the doors. Okay, okay. I got to go around, make sure all the bank slips are good. Okay, okay. And what's this pin for? Oh, you need you want me to stab every mannequin? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, this one yelped at me. What do I do? <laughs> yeah, this one actually moved. Is he a mannequin? <laughs> Someone's seen the movie Mannequin and Mannequin 2 one too many times. Yeah, yeah. We go from clever, clever store theft to not-so-clever store theft. Of course, we're going to Florida. Of course. Because they're not that clever in in Florida. Don't quote me on that. But A Lowe's employee was nabbed for stealing $850 worth of merchandise during his shifts. How he did it, you're just going to go, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. We go to Marion County, Florida, where a Marion County man allegedly stole over $850 worth of merchandise from the Lowe's store he used to work at by filling up shopping carts and walking out of the store over the course of several months. And no one bothered to check? <laughs> Didn't somebody just say, hey, look, there goes Carl with a shopping cart full of stuff. Why is he going yeah. to his car? Like, no one stopped to go, hey, Carl, we noticed lately when you work, stuff's gone missing. Can we see the receipt for that cart? Nope. No, just let him go. He works here. Mm-hmm. Let him go. Oh, I'm sure he's just taking that stuff to stock it. Oh, God, yeah. Out in his it, car. In his car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we didn't know we, you know, had 
shelves in his car. Vej Henry was arrested. <laughs> Vej? Vej, yes, V-E-J, Vej. Be careful how you say that. Was arrested and charged with larceny grand theft for the incidents that unfolded earlier this year, according to the Marion County Sheriff's Office. The investigation began last month after a loss prevention associate reported to deputies that Henry, a former employee of the Lowe's on Southwest 90th Street in Ocala, allegedly stole from the store on several occasions, according to an arrest affidavit. The 47-year-old man would allegedly fill up a shopping cart with multiple items during a shift, and then before going home, he would leave the store with the cart, breeze past checkout, and load the items into his car. And how did the loss prevention guy keep his job? <laughs> I don't know. There's no secrecy to this at all. No, no, no. He just did it and walked out. Exactly. But that's how a lot of thefts in the last couple of years have happened. I, I get it, but like, I don't know if I'm a loss prevention guy, and I notice that while this guy's on a shift, he's putting stuff in one cart during throughout his shift. I'm gonna ask, hey, what's are you are you pulling an order? You know what I mean? Like, what's what's with the cart? And then if I see him walk out without paying with the shopping cart that I've been watching him put stuff in his whole shift, I'm gonna question him. Like, hey, Vag, come here. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> Not Vag, it's Vag. <laughs> Hey, Vag, what are you doing? <laughs> Not Vag. Hey, you Vag, get over here. Listen, uh, I want you to clean out that card. If you'd mass and gill it real quick. <laughs> but hey, Vag, how come you got like half our back room in your back seat? <laughs> oh, that's just, that's just me. Hey, Vag, you got a lot of junk in that trunk. <laughs> um... <laughs> Fad. Uh You totally threw me off with that. Um, <laughs> well, uh, but a lot of loss prevention people will tell you, and that at least when it came to strangers, not people working under their own roof, but when it yeah. comes to strangers, they can't stop. Like, you know, they've done a lot of these um, flash mob robberies at stores where people will come in and just fill carts and bust through the door. Yeah, I've seen that. And they can't stop people. But, but that I get because there's like seven or eight of them coming in. You know what I well, mean? Well, even when it's one, like, have you ever seen like the the cameras from a Walgreens where someone yeah, will but, come okay, in? So then what's up? the purpose of loss prevention? You know what I mean? Like, Well, because they, you know, they, they tell you, well, we don't want to, you know, we don't want any charges to come up against our security people, like for, for any assault or anything like that, because they won't, they won't go to court and defend their own employee. Or they won't. Well, the other thing is, too, if that employee also gets shot and killed, they won't pay out the family for anything that happens to any injury that happens to that that Walgreens uh, member either. Well, then I'm getting a job as loss prevention. I don't have to do anything. Yes. Sit and launch and then call 911. That's exactly what they tell them. If someone okay. if someone takes a and fills a cart full of stuff and they're walking out of the store and you're loss prevention and you're at the door, you're to tell them I think you should put that back. And if they say, "Hell no, I'm on my way out the door," you're not to restrain them. Okay. You can take down their license plate, you can report them. You can you can do whatever it is you need to do and then call the police. But you're That's, not you're not to do anything to put yourself or any other store member in harm's way. 
that's my new job that I'm going to go find it. And that's why a lot of these stores in the inner city were closing because they shouldn't call it loss prevention. Then they should call it loss. We'll call somebody else. Hopefully we get our shit back. (laughs) (laughs) But, but seriously, that's why I, I target just closed. I don't remember how many stores because they said we, we can't stop loss prevention in, in, uh, in urban areas. Well, I know in New York, the new thing now is they're locking everything up behind plexiglass. Yes, yeah. You uh, you have to basically go ask yep. to buy stuff now. Yep, especially if they're higher-end items. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and at Dwayne Reed's stores in, in Philadelphia, New York, and, and places like that, Boston, yeah. everything's behind glass. Yeah, yep. Anything that's over, I think it's $10 is behind glass. Oh, jeez. Because they don't want to lose major inventory. So, right. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, let's keep moving here. Um, so this happened on several occasions, which were confirmed by surveillance video from the store. Henry also admitted to stealing from Lowe's several times. The affidavit detailed a few of Henry's alleged thefts. On all of the following dates, Henry would allegedly load a cart full of merchandise during his shift and walk out of the store without paying. On September 8th, he took $39 worth of stuff. On September 9th, $215 worth of stuff. On September 15th, $39 again. Must be the same item. Uh, On September 17th, $199 worth of stuff. And on October 3rd, $201 worth of stuff. Okay. So multiple trips. Uh, Henry was booked on $2,000 bond and has since been released. So there you go. Let's stay in Florida, shall we? Oh, of course. That's where all the good stuff happens. That's right. Uh, This one goes under, huh? And it's simply this, Bruiser. A Florida man broke into a woman's uh, house, sits on her couch, and makes an unusual request. Uh, He wanted a sandwich. (laughs) I wish it were that simple. Okay. He wanted his feet rubbed. I wish it were that simple, too. (laughs) Okay. We go to Marion County, Florida. Again, I don't know what it is about Marion County. A Florida man is now behind bars after he forcibly kicked his way into a woman's home, according to Marion County Sheriff. Uh, Daryl Davidson was arrested and charged with criminal mischief after an incident that unfolded on Friday, according to an arrest affidavit. This 39-year-old man was reportedly yelling a belligerent outside a woman's home. According to deputies, that's when he tried to get inside by kicking the front door when he was denied entry. On the second kick, Davidson allegedly broke the door frame and the door opened. Sim Solabim, thank you, Jeannie. Now, (laughs) Davidson entered the woman's home and sat on her couch, deputies said. He didn't try to commit any crimes while inside, which is good. Right, he could have hurt her seriously. That's right. But here's what he asked for. He wanted water and something okay. to smoke. <laughs> okay. That was it. So he's like, hey, the hard part's done. I'm ready. Let's uh, let's chill out. We'll drink some water and let's smoke something. It was tough getting in the house. Yeah, he was blown up. Yeah, he's blown up. Second kick. I mean, come on. Well, in movies, it's always the first kick. That's right. Well, he didn't figure there'd be a second. No. So he needed something to smoke. Shortly after, Davidson grew belligerent again and resumed yelling before leaving her house. I want my smokes! Come on! What do you mean you don't smoke? 
Who doesn't smoke? You got to have a lighter. It's always with someone who smokes. You always have to have a lighter. Everybody has to have a lighter. Yeah. I don't have a lighter. I, I never have a lighter. I have lighters everywhere and I don't smoke. Really? Yeah. Neither is Mrs. Bruiser. We have lighters everywhere. Huh. Okay. It remains unclear if Davidson and the woman knew each other. The man was taken into custody at his home nearby. Deputies said he spontaneously said he kicked the woman's door in because he was trying to warn her that she was in danger. <laughs> well, yeah, she was in danger of that guy. Hey, there's a guy kicking in your door. You might want to leave. Oh, and while you're, while you're out there, give me that bottle of water and some smokes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Davidson remains held at the Marion County Jail on a $1,000 bond. Doesn't that seem cheap for kicking down your door and wanting smokes and water? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think he has to pay for the door? Yes, I think so. Yeah. If you thought that was strange, I got one even stranger. Again, in Florida. Well, of course. Yes. A Florida man is wanted by cops after he leaves a goofy whiteboard message but fools no one. <laughs> okay. This one's even stranger, Bruiser. A Florida man tried to evade police in an unusual fashion, scribbling a message on a whiteboard that officers found hard to believe. What's the message? <laughs> let's see. Let's see if you think this is hard to believe. Officers with the Polk County Sheriff's Office were looking for 41-year-old Johnny Yates. Oh, at, I've heard this. I heard this story. I know exactly what he wrote, and it didn't work for him. At a home in Lakeland, when they were greeted by a whiteboard message hanging outside the home that informed them that Johnny Yates does not live here. Yep, I heard this story. I heard he, he was wanted, so he thought this would work. <laughs> the quote here is, gee, a dry erase board never lied to us before. Should we believe it? The sheriff's <laughs> office quipped in a Facebook post detailing the incident. Oh. However, deputies were apparently not fooled by the message, and their suspicions were soon confirmed by a person seen leaving the house who informed them that Yates was inside the house with a few others. <laughs> Damn snitches. Hey, this sign says Johnny's not here. Oh, yeah, that was written last week. He's here right now. He's uh, he's sitting on the couch. He's actually waiting for some smokes and some water if you want to go <laughs> yeah, get him. If you want to go get him, he's waiting on smokes and water. Uh, officers then surrounded the house and used a loudspeaker to demand Yates exit, though nobody in the house was responding. Enough was enough, the sheriff's office said in the Facebook post, adding the deputies then deployed surrender smoke inside the home and caused the four people to exit. Surrender smoke. Do you think that was used in the story before? <laughs> Do you think you get surrender smoke at Costco? <laughs> oh, yes, I'm here for the surrender smoke. I think that's more a Walmart thing, isn't it? Okay. Surrender smoke, new from Ronco. What other smoke do they have? Do they have surrender smoke? Do they have called a negotiator smoke? Do they have please don't run from the police smoke? <laughs> <laughs> and then they have the lavender smoke for when you're done with your bath. Yeah. Uh, yet Yates, who's wanted for aggravated battery, false imprisonment, and second-degree tampering, uh, remains stubborn and still... Nowhere to be seen. Yep. Nowhere to be seen. So the surrender smoke didn't work. He didn't surrender. No, he didn't surrender at all. Back to you. And the sign. He's like, hey, read the sign, guys. That's I'm right. not here. Read yeah, I'm the not sign. Here. Not here. Deputies used a second helping of the smoke because <laughs> the first one wasn't enough. <laughs> the first one only got four, but not the guy they wanted. 
That's right. They used a second helping of the smoke before uh, finally releasing a canine to locate the suspect because that always gets the job done. Oh, yeah. I love when the canines get people. Oh, yeah. According to the Post, Yates was eventually found hiding in a modified chest of drawers and was arrested and transported to jail. I want to see this modified chest of drawers. I do, too. I want to see if it's like, is it a hollowed out chest of drawers that has the false fronts or what, you know, a little, you know, door in the back. I, how, how elaborate. I think I bet you any money. It's just like, you remember the Seinfeld episode where uh, Kramer had the Asian tourists and he had the giant like cabinet where he could slide them in and out. And that was their beds. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he had the hot tub and it warped it so they were stuck. Oh yeah. That's what I think. Yeah, it could be. Uh, meanwhile, the four other uncooperative occupants of the home received a parting gift of charges of resisting and an all-expenses-paid trip to Grady Judd's bed and breakfast, the Post said. They got a <laughs> sense of humor down there, don't they? Yeah, they do. Well, they got yeah. surrender smoke, so. They got surrender smoke, which uh, is the gift that keeps on giving. So, there you go. Just didn't work this time. That's right. So, we're now to the not-safe-for-work part of our program. Okay. So for this, we're going to give you a couple of seconds to uh, turn down your listening device. If you're listening in public, maybe you've got us up at work. If you do, I don't know why, but if you've got us up at work, <laughs> uh, we'll get you a few seconds to turn us down so the boss doesn't hear. If you've got kids in the room, I don't know why you're listening with kids in the room. We're not Elmo and Sesame Street. Um, maybe put in your earbuds and we'll go in five, four, three, two, one. So, we're staying in Florida, of course. Because we like it here. Because all good, not safe for work stuff happens in Florida. This is a bit of an alliteration. It's a, it's a um, visual alliteration, but I'll try to turn it into an audio one. Okay. Florida man who ran police cars in Butte, B-U-T-T-E, <laughs> And had a bag of pills in his rectum gets 10 years. Rectum damn near killed him. Bag of pills in the rectum. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I'd like the shitty taste of that. (laughs) That's the thing. Like, if you're buying drugs from an illegal drug dealer, you got to think at some point in time, those drugs are up someone's butt. Yeah. Yeah. You are now taking butt drugs. Butt drugs. <laughs> um, yeah, and then you got to hope that the bag held real well. Yeah. Yeah. Or or you better hope there's no, like, little microscopic holes, you know? Oh. I definitely asked the guy what he ate before he shoved it up there. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if you're yeah, a kind like, of Is this going to be like a there? Mexican fiesta when the bag comes out? Like... <laughs> Do you have any dinty more beef stew? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm. A man is heading to the Montana State Prison 20 months after slowing down too drastically when passing a trooper sitting in the median of I-90 near Anaconda. This wasn't a crime, but it tipped off the trooper to possible to possible criminal activity. What followed led to five felony charges, several misdemeanors, and... This week, a 10-year prison sentence for 38-year-old Charles Ross Layden. According to prosecutors, it started the night of February 25th, 2022, when Layden uh, crested a hill on I-90 going 74 miles an hour. 
than a man. When you've got pills in your rectum, are you really going to go 74 miles an hour unless they got to come out? I mean, well, the guy, yeah, you, if anything's in my rectum, I'm doing the, I'm going as fast as I can to get out of my rectum. That's true. Uh, they're going 74 miles an hour, then immediately slowed his picked up, pickup to 60 miles an hour when he apparently saw the trooper. That's not a good idea either. No. No, you want to just let up off the gas. Yeah. Never want to hit the brake because that's the immediate indicator that, hey, I'm speeding. Yep. Yeah. Or, hey, I got pills up my butt. Yeah, or I've got pills up my, my butt. Uh, the trooper caught up to the truck, saw it had a broken taillight, and tried to pull Layden over. Layden was swerving, wouldn't stop and dodge spike strips other officers had put down at two locations. So he'd he's been swerving because he's uncomfortable, so he's constantly shifting yeah, in the driver's seat. Yeah, he's shifting back and forth from cheek to cheek. Uh, Layden got off at the Montana Street exit and moments later lost control of the pickup on an ice-covered parking lot and hit a Butte officer's car head-on, prosecutors say. Oh, that's not good. No. Uh, Layden regained control, rammed a trooper's vehicle before he stopped and surrendered. At the jail, a bag of fentanyl pills was found in his anal cavity, and more pills were found in his truck. So he couldn't get them all up there. He couldn't get them all in there, yeah. No. He's he's not a good drug smuggler. (laughs) He was he's not a seasoned vet. There's only so much room in the cab and so much room in the cab, if you know what I mean. Uh, uh, Well, he can get it stretched out now in prison. Oh! He ultimately pleaded guilty to felony counts of assault on an officer, criminal endangerment, possessing dangerous drugs, and possession with intent to distribute along with misdemeanor DUI for driving while high on meth. During a sentencing hearing before District Judge Robert Whelan, Layden and his attorney, Jack Morris, who used to pitch for the Twins, no, I'm kidding, <laughs> uh, appeared via Zoom from the, from the jail. Uh, Morris asked for a combined sentence of five years with three years suspended. He said ramming the police cars was more like cars on ice skates and bumper cars. His client had an addiction problem, and he had already served 600 days in jail. Oh, wow. He'd been there a while. Yep, that's that's how he knew he could fit stuff up his butt. That's right. Yeah, uh, Morris said Layden was from Florida, had moved to Butte for a job, and got hooked on heroin and other drugs. Because what else are you gonna do in Butte? Layden <laughs> spoke briefly too. He apologized to the court and the people of Butte, and said he realized during his twenty months in jail that his family in Florida was the most important thing in his life. After this is all said and done, I plan on moving back to Florida, seeking additional treatment and staying sober so I can be a good father to my daughter and show her how to shove shit up her ass. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I added that last part. At any time hmm. I feel like something going up my butt, just going to schedule a colonoscopy. <laughs> God. No. Prosecutor Ann Shea said the incidents were serious and asked for a net sentence of 10 years at Montana State Prison with another 10 years suspended, meaning extra years of probation conditions. She said there was weather that night, but Layden drove directly at an officer in a patrol car and put others in danger. Yeah. I I don't know that, you know, when you're that high on meth, you know that you're putting others in danger. No, I don't think you know that at all. No, I don't. I think you're just thinking about the drugs in your butt and want to get them out. Gotta shake, gotta shake, gotta shake, gotta shake, gotta shake. Gotta shake, gotta shake, gotta shake, shit, shit. 
Speaking of putting things in your butt, let's go to our next story. <laughs> Great segue. Thank you. I work hard at this job, or I'm hardly working one or the other. <laughs> a manslaughter case is dropped in a bondage death. Oh, okay. <laughs> I told you, speaking of putting things in your butt, you didn't believe yeah. me. A uh, bound and gag man is found after a meth romp. What is it with meth and putting <laughs> things in your butt? It's part of the meth protocol. I guess. Prosecutors concluded that a manslaughter case was not uh, suitable to be pursued against a defendant charged with beating to death another man during a drug-filled bondage session in a garage apartment littered with sex toys and in which the victim was found bound and gagged wearing a black leather mask and other fetish garb, according to court records. Let me show you what this mask looked like here, Bruiser. I, I don't know if you've ever wrestled a man in a mask that looks like that. <laughs> no, but I've seen that from uh, like Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah, that was in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, while the arrest of 35-year-old Bryant DeMello was announced earlier this year by, guess what, Florida investigators. Bruiser, are you shocked? Not shocked at all. Okay. The subsequent decision to abandon the case was not the subject of a similar press release and received no media notice. The one-page no-information notice to the court came from an assistant state attorney who noted that the declination or declination is taken to the to clear the records and to release subjects bond prosecutors offered no further details as to their decision to drop the felony count a smoking gun request for documents in the case was just completed by court officials who took several months to post online a redacted copy of the graphic arrest uh, affidavit charging DeMello with the September 2022 killing of 43-year-old management consultant Todd Reed. Defending his pummeling of Reed, DeMello was adamant that he acted in self-defense. Because the guy was tied up, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because, you know, he was free and doing bad stuff. Uh, Claiming that he was fearful of being severely injured when Reed clamped down on his penis and would not relax his jaw. <laughs> I'm going to let that sink in for a moment, if you would. Do our, do our, do our, do our, do I am about to quote from the case. So if you would, Bruiser, please hold your giggles till the end. Okay. Stop biting. Open your fucking mouth, DeMello said. He demanded of Reed. DeMello told cop he could not identify the trigger that caused Todd to bite his penis, though he speculated that this could have been influenced or caused by the methamphetamine Todd had consumed rectally just prior to... Whoa, 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 whoa. You can consume meth rectally? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you stopped me. I was on a roll, man. You were, I'm sorry. I just... Yes. You said rectally, and it's... Instantly perks me up. <laughs> well, it will instantly perk you up if you take it rectally. All right, let me let me okay okay yep, let yep, me keep yep. going again. I said hold your hold yep, hold until yep, the yep. end here. That's what he did. He held it to the end. <clears throat> okay, so this could have been influenced or caused by the methamphetamine Todd had been or had consumed rectally just prior to the fellatio on the ottoman. Yes, I used an ottoman. Thank you for not using the couch we all sit on. 
Asked if Reed made any unusual noises prior to the incident, DeMello replied that Reed was making appropriate noises for my dick being in his mouth. <laughs> you may take a small break to let that out. That's what he said. <laughs> the court affidavit describes DeMello as a veteran who retired from the military with PTSD. Despite that diagnosis, DeMello said he feels he has a healthy mindset. I'll let that swirl around for a minute. Very healthy. Reed, a Canadian who split his time in Florida, was found dead atop a garbage bag-covered ottoman inside a residence in Kissimmee, a city 20 miles south of Orlando. The masked Reed was in a bondage harness, leather collar, and wrist restraints. Blood had dripped onto the carpet below, and a large black dildo was resting nearby, according to police. <laughs> How do you think they got the meth in there? A search of Reed's iPhone revealed text messages in which DeMello agreed to sexual favors in return for money. The phone, which had been positioned to record the pair's sexual encounter, contained videos and images showing Reed with a bone-shaped gag in his mouth while DeMello wore a dog mask, a silver chain with a bone pendant, and a purple and yellow cock ring. Just figured I'd break that down for everybody. What is going on? <laughs> The phone also included a text message from DeMello to Reed that was sent a few hours after DeMello left the victim bloodied and unconscious in the apartment. Here's what he said. Again, please hold your giggles yep. until the end. Yep. Yo, I'm so sorry, man. You almost bit my cock off and I couldn't get you off me, DeMello wrote. I got scared and had to get you off somehow. Let me know if you're okay, all right, please? You were sleeping when I left. <laughs> yeah he wasn't sleeping there bud you beat the, you beat him to death <laughs> yeah you should have checked on him before he left yeah DeMello told police he met Reed through the internet on a site for sexual deviance and arrived at the victim's apartment with methamphetamine some of which he later injected into Reed uh, the duo's four hour sexcapade that's in quotes DeMello said was sweet adding that he attempted to live stream the encounter, but encountered difficulties. <laughs> Evidently, <laughs> Wi-Fi was an issue. We wanted to live stream this, but, you know, <laughs> couldn't get the 5Gs. <laughs> Wi-Fi was spotty. Yeah. Uh, he didn't have fiber. He had dial-up. That's right. Before departing the apartment, DeMello, who knew Reed was unconscious, said he collected his various sex toys from the living room and bedroom, but may have accidentally taken some sex toys and props that belonged to Todd. Uh, DeMello left. Oh, it, it sucks when you can't, when you confuse your sex toys with other people's sex toys. Well, if you're going to take them, just make sure you wash them and bring them back. Yes, put them in the dishwasher. You're good. Yeah. DeMello left without rendering aid to Reed or summoning medical assistance. Investigators noted Todd ultimately passed away as a result of his encounter with Bryant, according to the arrest affidavit. A coroner's report concluded that Reed's cause of death was strangulation with blunt force trauma to the head, listed as significant condition, contributing to his demise. Uh, DeMello, who lives in Orlando, was nabbed in January while at a shopping mall. A post-arrest frisk reportedly turned up a Ziploc baggie containing meth, which resulted in the filing of a felony drug charge separate from the manslaughter count. While the manslaughter prosecution has been dropped, the narcotics possession case to which DeMello has pleaded not guilty, remains active. During a late August court hearing, a judge ordered DeMello to obtain new counsel since the jurist has granted his prior lawyer's motion to withdraw due to 
irreconcilable differences between himself and DeMello. My whole thing is if he would have withdrawn in the first place, nobody would be dead. <laughs> Just saying. Free on $3,000 bond. DeMello's next court appearance is scheduled for... Well, it's 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 already been scheduled. We'll just put it that way. Uh, and our last story, the most popular story of the week, Bruiser. Yep. No stuffed animal is safe in Arkansas. And I want to thank <laughs> at least five to seven of you who sent this story to me this past week. Okay. Let's hear what happened to these stuffed animals in Arkansas. A man is caught in the act with a stuffed animal. <laughs> 55-year-old Arkansan was busted after a cop car or a, a cop saw a car rocking at 12:45 a.m. Well, he was really giving it to that stuffed animal. Oh, let me tell you something: Teddy Bear will never walk straight again. <laughs> that early in the morning, what was he on his way to work? Figured, hey. Well, no, 12.45 a.m., meaning it was 12.45 at night. Oh, I thought I heard 5.45. I'm no, sorry. 12.45. Okay, so yeah, so he <laughs> just figured, hey. I want to point out here, Bruiser, this teddy bear has bars over his eyes because he's ashamed. Is that the teddy bear in question? <laughs> I don't know if it's the actual one, but. <laughs> like, what an ad. <laughs> I'm just saying that that teddy bear has been shamed. All right, teddy bear, show us on this human being where the man touched you. <laughs> If the car's rocking, don't bother knocking because the guy inside may be trysting with a stuffed animal. <laughs> He's banging away with Berenstein Bears. <laughs> That's right. An Arkansas cop last Sunday morning spotted a suspicious car parked outside a commercial storage facility that had been broken into 16 times this year and 36 times in 2022. Ooh, yeah, not a good place to screw with a stuffed animal. No, it has a history. And so does the bear. Uh, a sheriff's deputy noted that the vehicle in question was seen rocking at around 1245 in the morning. When the cop looked inside the auto, he spotted 55-year-old Theodore Morgavan having sex with a stuffed animal. Morgavan, a divorced father of three, lives about a mile away from the storage facility in Midway, which has a population of 1,036. You don't think that's going to get around town, do you? Oh, it's totally going to get around town. And I don't get why he had to leave home. He's divorced. I'm assuming he lives home alone. Probably. Just do your daughter stuffed animal in the house. Oh, God. (laughs) Since Morgavan is on probation, cops were able to search him in his auto without the need for a warrant. According to a probable cause affidavit, that search turned up methamphetamine, a syringe, and two marijuana pipes. (laughs) Congratulations. There's why he was doing an animal. (laughs) A stuffed animal. Morgavan was charged with two felony drug charges and misdemeanor counts of public sexual indecency and possession of drug paraphernalia. At his arraignment, Morgavan, who is free on five, I'm sorry, $5,000 bond, entered a not guilty plea. Oh, come on. You got caught red-handed banging a teddy bear. He wasn't red-handed. Well, he was was red-assed, I'll tell you that. He got caught with his dick in the stuffed animal. Yeah. I wonder if he had to bore the hole himself or it was already there. <laughs> I bet he went and got a Teddy Ruxman and he filmed, he like recorded someone's voice. <laughs> Ouch, that hurts. Ouch. <laughs> Did you put meth up there? Wow, I feel high. <laughs> um, yeah, did he roof you the bear first? <laughs> oh, God, I don't know. Uh, he entered a not guilty play, uh, plea his next due in court. The day before Halloween, October 30th. 
good for him. It's going to be a nightmare. Uh, Morgan Van was convicted earlier this year on narcotics and theft charges and placed on probation for two years and fined $1,690. Further details about the stuffed, stuffed animals do not appear in court records. Evidently, they're protecting the stuffed animal. In his. Yeah, it's in, it's in Witsack now. Yeah. Because it's, uh, it's, it's, the, it's their main witness for his trial. Yeah. So. We're going to watch a dateline where they're just going to black out the, the lights because the bear wants to be anonymous. We had to protect the name of the bear. <laughs> that poor bear, Ted E. Bear, was walking along a roadside one night. I think it was Ted E. Bear was sitting on a shelf just chilling out at the you know the convenience store when this man came purchased him from the pimp <laughs> took him to a parking lot filled him full of meth it was the last way it was the last night that teddy bear would maintain his innocence <laughs> teddy bear has now become an addict <laughs> suffers from severe ptsd his stuffing is coming out everywhere Oh no! He went to build a bear. Oh no! Went to build a bear and caused the scene, throwing fluff everywhere, <laughs> saying these bears don't know how hard it is. Well, in real life, it was really hard. In <laughs> at least for thirty seconds. <laughs> Anywho, that's it for dumb crime, stupid criminals, Bruiser. Where are you going to be this weekend? I am at home. Actually, nice weather means get to go out and do some yard work. Um, but I am training the youth. Of professional wrestling, amlwrestling.com slash training. Come train with me every Monday and Wednesday. All right. Like good old AML training center. All right. I am uh, I'm not up in St. Cloud this weekend, but uh, I'll be uh, I'll be saying goodbye to the chippers, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's supposed to be cold this weekend. I want to thank uh, Sarah DeVello for being on today. The book is Broadway Butterfly, a thriller. I encourage you guys to go out and get this book. This book is something else. It, uh, again, period piece, uh, going back to the Harding administration, 1923 Manhattan. And boy, folks, I tell you, it is, it is something else. You definitely want to check out this book. If you're a fan of true crime murder mysteries from that period of time, from the 1920s, this is something, and Sarah has really done a good job with this book. Okay. This is something. It's got turns, it's got twists, and uh, a killer that you would never suspect. Very cool. Yeah, and it all centers around Dot King, who is, um, uh, let's put it this way, an adult entertainer in New York <laughs> who, uh, who's been offed, but you don't know who's offed her. There's cast of characters so i encourage you to go get it there's a link in the description of this program that you can uh, pick up the book broadway butterfly a thriller by sarah deville okay uh supernatural news uh tomorrow and then um and then we've got a guy by the name of ra on the program on thursday and we'll be uh we'll be talking about near-death experiences and how he got stuck in the magnetosphere Ooh, okay. Yeah, we'll talk about all kinds of stuff with Raw coming up on Thursday. So that's a little sneak peek into the rest of the week. That'll do it for True Crime Tuesday. I want to thank you so much for Beer City Bruiser. I'm Tim Dennis. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We'll see you tomorrow for Darkness Radio. And thank you so much for tuning in to True Crime Tuesday.